He was supposed to be an evil sunspot from the future, and instead he turns out to be a protoplasmic entity that copies sunspots DNA. Don't worry, we're gonna get into it. It's fine. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is Alex Segura, a novelist and comic writer, author of Star Wars Poe Dameron Freefall, the Pete Fernandez mystery series, and the upcoming Secret Identity from Flatiron Books, publishing in March of next year. He has also written a number of comics, including some fun work in the Archie universe. And he is currently the Senior Vice President of Sales and Marketing at Oni Press. So in the comics pro world, when not writing, which is kind of a fun day job to have if you're a comics person, right? Yeah. He is one of many writers contributing to the upcoming anthology issue, Marvel's Voices Comunidades, number one, which will spotlight Latinx characters and creators. We cannot talk about his story in it yet because it hasn't been announced, but I suggest you pre-order it now. Alex, how are you doing today? I am good. I'm so excited to be here. This is, uh, I think I, I've been fanning about your podcast for a while now, so to be on it is a, a treat. Yeah, you were an early adopter. <laughs> it's good. We talked some time ago about you coming on to do this, and Sunspot was your first pick, is my recollection. So that yes. is who we are here to talk about today. Roberto da Costa, <laughs> sometimes called Bobby, in early yes. episodes of this podcast called Bobby da Costa by me, <laughs> Roberto da Costa. Often called Birdo on the page, but Brazilian people have pointed out that it should be Beto. And so you'll note Monet has been calling him Beto in the issues of X-Corp because she would know better. Yes. Unclear if that will take with his other friends who have just been calling him Birdo since 1982. But we'll see. I'm going to call him Beto because it feels proper and because it distinguishes him from Bobby Drake, which I think is the confusing thing with the two yeah. Bobbies. But if you refer to him as Bobby, we all know who we're talking about today. We're talking yes. about Sunspot. I like Beto because it makes me think of Love and Rockets. And yeah. Hernandez, so. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, I was, uh, the X-Men were my first real like comic book obsession. And um, I was thinking a lot about it before I, I came on, you know, but when we started talking about it, because I was one of those readers that was picking up the new issues of Uncanny towards the end of Claremont's run, mm -hmm. which was, you know, it was so I was in on the Shadow King saga and all that. But at the same time, I was reading classic X-Men. Right. The reprint book. The reprint book. So I was like, you know, you're reading and I'm making hand motions as if anyone's going to see it. But, you know, it's I was reading the reprints and then hoping that they would catch up with the new stuff. And um, I became to this day, I'm still a huge Claremont, I guess apologist is the right term. I mean, he's, he's written <laughs> written so many amazing things, and and there's also some things that people take issue with. But I I kind of stand by it just by default. But um, what really got me into X Men at first were the Marvel trading cards, mm, those Fleer and Tops and all of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember reading. I was I remember as a kid being baffled by why X Factor was X Factor. You know, why would the original X Men ever leave the X Men? No good reason. Yeah, there was. You no read the book and you're like, <laughs> yeah. oh. Yeah, I mean that book. It's uh, those first few <laughs> issues are are challenging. 
Wheezy rescues it, she but it's, a, it's an absurd premise that does not make any it's sense. It's very complicated. You know, we're going to be mutant hunters, and then we're going to also be a mutant X-Men-like team called the Exterminators, which was confusing to me as a kid. But I think as a kid, also, I didn't really read those early issues. I just came on during the Simonson Golden Age when it was Wheezy and Walt. Yeah, and she does away with the Exterminators thing pretty quickly. Like, as soon as Fall of the Mutants is over, that gets thrown out, which I yeah. think is... You know, probably. It was a good idea. What I never understood is why aren't the exterminators the mutant hunters? Yeah, it seemed like a weird naming. It seems like it's backwards because like exterminators is like. I mean, it's very clear that Bob Layton is doing a riff on Ghostbusters, right? Right. Yeah, even the suits look very Ghostbusters. Yeah, and like Angel has like a Ghostbusters backpack (laughs) to cover up his wings, which is doesn't that hurt? Like that's gotta hurt. Like you would think, but I mean, he was strapping them down into his underwear for the whole '60s under a suit jacket, so (laughs) you know. Yeah, so I mean, that was kind of so I was baffled about that, but I was also fascinated by the New Mutants. uh, This idea of, and I I think it's a sidekick, you know, the the appeal of the sidekick, and you know, Spider Man is really a sidekick as a hero. But as kids, you always love Robin. You love the sidekick because you can relate to them. And uh, the New Mutants were always really interesting to me. And I think Claremont really got to work out a lot of stuff that he couldn't really do in the main X-Men title. And I was always fascinated later on by the idea that they were all his creations, co-creations, whereas a lot of the X-Men stuff early on was stuff he had to absorb. Like, you know, the giant size X-Men roster was given to him, and he obviously got to tweak and edit that and change that over time. But New Mutants was very much his idea from the start. And I think it was like, if I'm remembering correctly, the the hope was that he had to kind of, he wanted to keep controlling the burgeoning X-Men world. So he chose to write it and kind of make it what he wanted. He wanted to write it all. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, which I I can also relate to just, you know, having that passion for for the characters. Bobby, I think Bobby DaCosta was was the first, I guess, you know, I'm not Brazilian, I'm Cuban American, but there was, you know, the first sense of, inclusion i guess you know seeing a character that was similar to my background not one for one obviously because it's but he's the first latino x-man character period yeah yeah and so that was awesome it was amazing and it also didn't feel like a trope it also felt like he was a very unique character he wasn't he didn't fall into a lot of the cliches you would see for latino characters up to that point and i wasn't i wasn't a new mutants reader from the beginning i came in during the Sienkiewicz era, but I got to, mm-hmm. you know, you know, that was also the time when comic shops were cropping up a bit more. So I got to look, you know, dig up those back issues and kind of get to know the original core team. And um, I love how flawed they were. And, it's, you know, Bobby is particularly flawed. He's just temperamental. He's hot headed. He's angry. He's prone to he's impulsive. But that's also what makes him wonderful. I think, you know, he's this complicated guy. They feel like real teenagers, which I think yeah. is, and and so did Kitty over in X Men. You know, some she was very precocious, and that was mm-hmm. sort of her thing. The others in New Mutants definitely feel like kids. You know, they mature over the course of Claremont's run. Then, as a lot of the reason a lot of people I think are down on the Simonson run, which I think has great moments, yeah, but is certainly not as good as the Claremont run. She would tell you she didn't want to write the book. Oh, really? Yeah, I didn't know that. Oh, she was supposed to do four fill-in issues because he was launching the Wolverine solo and Excalibur. Oh, right. He was like, I can't do this many books. And then she was going to do four issues just to cover him. Uh Uh-huh. And then he was like, Wheezy, I really actually can't do this many books. (laughs) And he never came back. Right, yeah. 
That's funny. You know, I think that they communicated about plots and things, like the way that she resolves Ilyana's story in Inferno definitely feels like, on some level, a culmination of what he had set up years earlier. I think, though, that there was also something of a mandate from up top to make them feel younger again, because in that early run of New Mutants, they definitely feel young. But Claremont is not... It's interesting because he always says that he writes his characters from a place of perpetual adolescence. And I think that that's true. Yeah. But it's a very precocious adolescence. They all feel like teeny adults by somewhere around, I would say, issue 25, 30, you know? Yeah, I would say that they really aged. And I think it's a byproduct of the visuals. You know, you have someone like Bill Sinkiewicz. Sinkiewicz ages them up, basically. He ages them up. He just, I mean, he draws, it was such a game changer from, you go from Bob McLeod, who's, you know, a great, very traditional comic book artist. Yeah, but Bob McLeod draws them as 14, 15-year-olds, and then right. Sienkiewicz draws them as these... I mean, they're still teenagers, but they're, like, artsy, gorgeous. I mean, there's... Particularly, there is this incredible series of pinups that he does at the end of each right. issue. when he t- And you get one for each of the New Mutants and then one for each of the Hellions, which I yeah. always thought was very cool. Sunspots is... One of the, I mean, I always think of Danny with the with the bow and arrow. That's like a beautiful. I think poster. you shared the sunspot. You shared, but the, the sunspot. sunspot one, yeah, I shared it yeah. when I put up the call out for questions. He looks like a hustler in a Warhol movie. Yes, on a street corner, he's his got his shirt hanging up. open. The collars popped, and he has his arm sort of flexed out, and it's turned black and sunspot e, like his power signature, but just on his arm. I think it's cool on a couple of different levels. One is it conveys the sexiness of the character, which was Mm. sort of his role a little bit on the team. He's never quite successful. Yeah. And that's, I think, where you could get into the stereotype, like the Latin lover kind of thing. But it's all kind of bottled up and he doesn't know what to do with it. Yeah, he doesn't have that level of success. He's not actually smooth. Like, he doesn't actually, he's not actually good at it, but he is gorgeous, which is helpful. And the other thing that it does, that pinup, is it really illustrates to me what I think is sort of the symbolism of his powers, which is perhaps a little problematic if we are looking back. You know, it's a little on the nose, but if you go to his first appearance, what's important about Beto, and this is why the movie version was pretty disappointing, is Mm -hmm. that he's not just Brazilian. His father is black. Yeah. He's Afro-Brazilian and actually from a wealthy Afro-Brazilian family, which is an interesting... There's a million different tensions there, and I'm not an expert on the racial dynamics of Brazil, but I know right. that race in Brazil is very complicated. Mm-hmm. But emphatically, they are black, or at least his father is considered emphatically black. He is a rising star playing football or right. soccer, as we mm-hmm. know it in America, but yeah. that version of football, to be clear. And he's treated with disdain by his peers because of his race. Right. And he's so angry about that, that that's what triggers his mutant power when he's being racially abused, essentially, by the people around him. They're saying racial slurs, essentially, to him. I mean, it's actually pretty resonant because this just happened with the UK-Italy game, like the black players. This is part of football culture. We're 40 years hence, and it's still a very relevant scene. His power specifically, I mean, it doesn't say it like this, but he has supercharged melanin. Mm -hmm. He's able to absorb solar energy into his skin and he turns into like a jet black silhouette shadow that's crackling with solar energy. Right. It connects his power 
intrinsically to his race. That's where I'm saying, like, it comes across a little bit dated, and it is an angry young man kind of thing. He is very much the angry young man of the group, and I think that if that characterization had stayed consistent, he would have been stereotypical not as a Latino character, but, like, as a Black character. Right. But what's interesting about it, and I think that this is potentially a really powerful idea, it reminds me of a lot of, like, Afrofuturist writing, is sort of the idea that it is his Blackness that gives him his power. He is able to weaponize the racism back against them. That's a really interesting power. It's all subtext. It's not something that's ever said that explicitly on the page. But I think that's what we're meant to take away from it. Yeah, I mean, and subtext is so powerful. I think once you start over, you know, obviously subtext is meant to be analyzed, but when you start over explaining it on the page, sometimes you right, lose some right. of that impact. Yeah. But Claremont is subtle with this, whereas often he was notorious for over explaining on the page. You yes. know, like Sam is nigh invulnerable when he's blasted, and we're gonna tell you that every single issue in case it's your first issue of this comic. I wonder how much of that is like shooterisms or shooter notes, like you know, because shooter was a stickler for explaining the character each time they appear. Claremont felt very strongly about that, too. Okay. One of his major complaints about modern comics is that not enough is done to explain things to a new reader if this is their first issue. He thinks that's part of what makes comics impenetrable to new readers. You should be able to pick up any issue and understand who the characters are and what they can do. And I think that that's to some extent true. I think that when you read it in trade sometimes now, it's a little funny, but he didn't know that anyone would ever be reading it in trade. Right, yeah. Uh, to I mean, writing comics at that time, comics, single issues were, you know, disposable. You know, they were going to be out and on the rack for X amount of time and somebody would read them. And then, you know, the continuity got tighter and tighter as the, you know, I would say distribution is as much a reason. And now this is just my marketing person talking, but as much of a reason for people not being tapped into the medium or tapped into the medium in different ways. You know, if you're reading it monthly on the newsstand and you maybe don't get a chance to get issue X or, you know, issue whatever, you have to reestablish who those characters are because you are catering to a casual readership. Whereas Mm -hmm. now the readers are locked in and you're getting them where you get them with regularity. And there's no, there's no shortage. You know, if, if I can't find an issue of new mutants at the comic shop i can load it up on my ipad or you know buy the trade at my bookstore so yeah i would say distribution is also a factor not just story points when it comes to chris's assertion absolutely absolutely and i you know like with many things chris is resistant to change let's say and i i think that that's one of his more charming qualities at times oh yeah so. i find him to be supremely fascinating i'm a huge you know I, obviously i love the x-men stuff but i also find the arc of his career to be re- interesting just to, also as a novelist yeah well i mean my chris claremont paragon collection marvel made thing just arrived today so i saw that i was so intrigued well if you're intrigued listeners this month on the patreon so in June, on my trip, I wasn't able to do the bonus episode, so there's four this month. The first one is already up. It is a Pride of the X-Men commentary track with Anthony Oliveira. I think it's pretty fun. The next one will be a deep dive on Victoria Montesi, Marvel's first lesbian character with Sarah Century. Not an X-Men character, but she's great, so we're going to do it as a bonus. Then... There will be two more. One is I'm doing a second AMA because there are a lot more of you now than there were when I did the first one. And then the fourth one, and this is the one that's relevant to the Claremont Marvel made, I am going to break down for you the 
Marvel made exclusive stories that Claremont wrote for this new collection. One of them is a Wolverine story, and one of them is a prequel to Days of Future Past starring Sage and Bloody Bess. Yes, so what is in that book? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to spoil this episode you're crafting, but... Well, those are the news stories. Otherwise, it collects some of the classics like Jean Grey Dies on the Moon. You know, like it's sort of like, a yeah, it's the hits. But then there's this news story. And then as like a stretch goal, they did this Wolverine story also. That's like a it's like a floppy. It's not in. Wow. Oh, yeah. I need to get that then. I would even as a reader, I was fascinated. Like I said, I was reading the classic X-Men and the new X-Men at the same time. I was fascinated that he had thought this stuff through so deeply that he could weave in these beautiful stories with John Bolton, these quiet interludes. The backups are incredible, yeah. There's some of the more meaningful X-Men stories of the era. You know, I think they're hugely underrated, but just kind of filling in those gaps. And and it's not just his vision that he was actualizing, but sometimes stuff would happen outside of his quote-unquote purview. Like, right. Jean Grey coming back. He has a backup story that really digs into... Yeah what it means is gene the phoenix all of that and there's actually a, a big callback to that in this new story a callback oh to really that, to that classic x-men backup yeah so yeah or even you know he, he was gone from now and now this i don't mean for this to become just me talking about how much i love chris claremont but there's a moment you know he was gone for so long and then he comes back and does x-men the neo and all that and I found that he came in like a pro. You know, he picked up on the storylines that happened before. He didn't ignore them. He could have very easily said, I'm Chris Claremont. I'm coming back. And Yeah, he did the six-month gap. But even then, he didn't. That was really just for ease. He didn't throw yeah. out the storylines that were in, in progress. He kind yeah. of kept what was going. Yeah, I just think, unfortunately, the Neo and Telemore Vosge and Bloody Bess yeah. and all of that. Those And the goth. Those characters just didn't hit. Oh, right. Yeah. No, they didn't land, even though the art was beautiful, too, with Lee Neil Yu and... I'm blanking on who else was doing the other book. but In any case, what made you want to talk about Sunspot today? Apart from the Latino connection, what is it about this character that you love? I love that he's a contrarian. I love that he doesn't just do what everyone else does. You know, he is outspoken. You know, the thing that comes to mind, too, and, and I think one of the times I was reminded of this about of how independent he is was the early x-force days Mm -hmm. you know obviously he was part of new mutants all through the end sort of he quits a couple times which is interesting yeah he quits a couple times but he's i I think at the time when uh liefeld and fabian kind of step in and it morphs into x-force uh sunspot is gone and i think he becomes he becomes something else i'm almost i'm almost dancing between things because i don't want to spoil it but these comics have been out for like 30 years no 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 stop stop yeah yeah, spoiled I'm going to do a character file where I tell them his entire publication. That's (laughs) not how this podcast works. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, it's true. And so, yeah. And so he quits the team. And I just found that as a reader, I was like amazed that he could be so independent and just kind of shunt off. And then he becomes Rainfire and he's got this whole kind of complicated history, even up to. And don't worry about it. We will get into the Rainfire of it all. We will. I swear. So many of you wrote in, what the fuck is Rainfire? And we'll get there. It's not really that hard. To, did you find it challenging to sum up? No, because honestly, it's never really resolved. Like, it mm-hmm. was a stupid retcon, and then we just move on with our lives. Yeah, I, I, if I remember correctly, basically Cable telepathically wipes him or kind of rewrites him. He kind of downloads Ascani into his brain. <sighs> yeah, it was supposed... <laughs> we'll get into it later, I promise. Yes, yes, we'll yes. get into Rainfire later. Yeah. He was supposed to be an evil sunspot from the future, and instead he turns out to be a protoplasmic entity that copies sunspots' DNA. Don't worry, we're going to get into it. 
It's fine. And he fights the protoplasm at some point. It's like Yeah, and like the protoplasm possesses him. It it's very um it's very like the Hal Jordan Parallax retcon. Right. Right. Which I thought was a little bit cleaner. Which is itself very much like the Gene Gray Phoenix retcon, right? Parallax is definitely cleaner than Gene or Rainfire. <laughs> neither yes. of those particularly work. Yeah. So I I can't say I was as caught up with his Avengers stuff. I mean, I read those Avengers issues, but I wasn't as invested. I mean, listen, I'm just not an Avengers guy. I'm going to go back and read all of it at some point, Hickman's, because I think it will probably factor into Hickman's X-Men, right? I'm so glad you said that. I've never been an Avengers person. I've always been. It's always been X-Men, X-Factor. Yeah. Yeah. I like monica rambo and i mm-hmm. liked carol danvers in the 80s but that's yeah. really the extent of my avengers interest i just have never found it particularly compelling i mean people don't realize like the people who are a little younger which i'm starting to realize more and more the listeners yeah. of this podcast often skew like oh i was born after es for extinction came out and i'm like oh god wow i'm like really? no i don't like that at all i mean but yeah that's just, time marches on right i was born the month fall of the mutants ended so for some people i'm that guy right yeah I, i'm an eight, i was born in 80 so i'm a little bit older but i'm 88 and i'm saying yeah. these people are like 2000 and i'm like I wow hate this. that's crazy i love you guys though if you're listening i <laughs> yeah. love all of you please you're keep the listening. best you're the best i'm just terrified by my own encroaching mortality that you represent bottom line what people don't remember is that the avengers really were a totally bullshit franchise to some extent Like, not to say that there weren't good comics, I'm just saying no one really cared until Bendis relaunched them in the aughts in advance of the MCU with all of that new Avengers. And they had to put Spider-Man and Wolverine on the team to make people buy it. Yeah, and I remember being, I was working at Wizard at the time, and it was such a huge thing because it was definitely an editorial, I mean, Bendis obviously wrote it. Yeah, but it was an editorial project, was we need to make the Avengers a viable brand that people care about. Because unless you were, I know people who were like huge Thor fans or huge Iron Man fans or huge Captain America fans, but it was unusual. Yeah. The X-Men and Spider-Man and sometimes the Fantastic Four were the comics that people read. Yeah, and the books, I mean, I would buy, I had a ton of West Coast Avengers for whatever reason. And I think it's because as if you bought comics on on the newsstand, which is how I bought them as a kid, you'd go in with your A-list choices. I wanted Spider-Man or Batman or X-Men. And if those weren't around, then you'd get Daredevil or West Coast Avengers. So I read some West Coast Avengers here and there, or like into the 90s, like Force Works. Like I, (laughs) the other problem I now have with the Avengers, and I mentioned this so many times in this podcast, I'm sorry for the Jessica Drew fans, but Jessica Drew is essentially my Barry Allen. Alan. Like, yeah. I'm like, what are you doing here? You're not supposed to be here. You died. You were gone. And the character I like more was around. And now you've just come back and I'm supposed to right. give a shit. That's my issue with Jessica Drew. To the point where they made her a single mom. That was Julia Carpenter's entire thing was that she it's was true. a single mom superhero. So where is Julia Carpenter now? Julia Carpenter is Madam Webb now and just oh, shows up to do right. plot device stuff. Right. Which, like, right. annoying. I mean, like, I love a precog, so love that yeah. for her. But <laughs> She had a great costume. She had the best costume. Mm-hmm. That Spider-Woman costume is incredible. It's so good that they came up with the black Spider-Man costume. The Spider-Woman design came first. Did it come first? I wow. believe that's the case. Yeah, I could, I'm could. i going to fact check, but I think We have to check true. that. Yeah, I don't know. If I'm, I'm going to be on the other side of that. Well, I'll fact check and I'll cut out whatever is wrong. <laughs> I love it. Anyway, point yeah. is, 
so when Sunspot and Cannibal joined the Avengers, I was like, oh, that's interesting. But I didn't pick it up because I don't like read Avengers books. I have since gone back and read some of it. There is an incredible story toward the end of it where Beto fakes his own death mm-hmm. as part of his like aim buyout buyout and that is extremely funny because all of the new mutants go to his funeral right there's a bit where doug is like i can't believe it the first new mutant to die and someone i think it's like i think it's like danny is like doug what the fuck are you talking about (laughs) that was you oh man yeah you don't remember that really but like we all went through that already actually we went to a funeral and then warlock is like when should i reanimate his corpse which like that's just funny because yeah yeah i like to think it's also warlock being funny or maybe he was teeing himself up. Well, we all remember that issue. That's yeah. a pretty incredible issue, the New Mutants. And that's yeah. actually right after. So what's interesting about Sunspot, actually, to go back to the old classic New Mutants stuff, is that, so like in his origin story, in that Marvel graphic novel number four, mm-hmm. his girlfriend Juliana is killed, saving his life. She jumps in front of a bullet. She is also Brazilian. She's white, though, and there right. is sort of an implication that their relationship is perhaps controversial. Again, mm-hmm. this stuff isn't said that overtly on the page, but right. it's definitely there. And it turns out in the end, this is much later we find out all of this, that basically... This is all Donald Pierce's Hellfire Club stuff, but it turns out that Beto's father, Emmanuel da Costa... Not a nice guy. (laughs) Not a nice guy involved in the Hellfire Club's dealings and all of that. So you have this, like, fridging in the beginning of his story, which is, like, never ideal, but it does motivate him. And then when Sean is apparently killed early in the run of the ongoing book, he Mm. takes that really hard because he's like, it happened again, I failed her again, etc. And then they all go to Nova Roma, which is the worst story in early New Mutants, for (laughs) sure. Those early issues are bumpy, yeah. I love Celine. I'm glad we have her. Lukewarm on Magma. But we have her too. Pun intended. Nova Roma <laughs> is just a mess. But the yeah. reason they all go to Nova Roma is because Beto's mother, who is white, actually, mm-hmm. and we learn that in this story. Right. She's an archaeologist and she's always like out on a dig. <laughs> it's Indiana Jonesing around. Yeah. So she's the reason they all end up in Nova Roma. And then that's when it really turns out that like his dad like funded the coup in Nova Roma and sabotaged his own wife's expedition and all of that stuff. And so Beto is like, I am rebuking this family. I disown you. Like I'm leaving. And that's sort of the first time he quits, right? Like he quits his family before he ever quits the new mutants, but he is prone to these sort of angry moments where he leaves. And when he really gets to his breaking point it's when sean comes back right and he realizes that xavier knew that sean wasn't dead and didn't tell them yeah and that's a precursor i mean maybe it's not a precursor the first precursor but to the story idea that xavier knows so much more but he just doesn't show his cards because he doesn't trust his students right it's really telling how Claremont does it. He does it in a much more subtle way, which like we said, is not usually what he does, but he played it really well. I think the character stuff is actually often very subtle. The thing with Claremont is that because there's so much exposition, people think that he's like telling rather than showing, but so much with Claremont, in my opinion, is what goes unsaid despite the massive speech bubbles. 100%. 
it's interesting because this betrayal of them by Xavier is sort of the last act by Xavier as the leader of the New Mutants because Claremont then immediately ships him off to space and has him appoint Magneto <laughs> as the new leader of the school. Which, in his M shirt. Yeah, in his titty top with the pecs yeah. hanging out the sides. I'm a big fan. I'm just saying, if we're doing a Trial of Magneto miniseries, we should bring back the Trial of Magneto titty top. Yeah, why not? Yeah. It's like one of those tanks that goes all the way down to your waist on the sides, like gay guys wear at the gym, and I love that for him. It's just interesting, you know, when he decides, I'm going to be a good guy, or I'm going to be, you know, take over the senior school, I'm going to put, this is my costume instead of his pretty menacing villain outfit. And so Beto's furious about Magneto, and then he's furious about the Beyonder, because meeting the Beyonder just creates this, like, total existential crisis in him where he is like... Actually, nothing we do means anything, apparently, because there are just gods who can do whatever they want. So he actually quits and goes back to Brazil to be with his mom. And that's Mm -hmm. in, like, I want to say 37? Yeah, that was after Sinkevit, but before Wheezy took over, right? Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And so then he comes back, like, a handful of issues later. He's like, all right, (laughs) fine, I'll come back. But it's interesting, like, he does this repeatedly because he comes back in 43, but Mm -hmm. then in 50, after he has this sort of time travel adventure where he experiences a dystopian future, don't worry about it. Yeah, it happens. Then there's the first issue of Fallen Angels and the Fallen Angels miniseries. And what happens there is that Beto gets angry at Sam and overreacts and accidentally uses his powers and really hurts Sam. Mm -hmm. And all of the other new mutants are really pissed at him and he's embarrassed and he goes to talk to Magneto about it and finds Magneto isn't there at the time, but Magneto, brilliant school headmaster that he is, (laughs) has left Beto's like, permanent record or whatever that Xavier wrote on the desk. Conveniently, yeah. He's like reading the evaluations that Xavier wrote about (laughs) the students and he happens to leave Beto's out on his desk. I was just reading your diary. Yeah, while he like goes down to the deli or something. It's like, where are you, Eric? Where where have you gone? But anyway, Xavier has written that Hiberto is arrogant and that his temper has the potential to take him down the same criminal path as his father. Wow. Reading that, Beto is pretty offended. And so he strikes out on his own and decides, you know what? I'm not a superhero. I'm a villain. And so he becomes one of the fallen angels who are these petty thieves that trained in a very Xavier-like way by the Vanisher, who is now a bald guy, much like Xavier. One of the more bizarre detours of that era, I Absolutely crazy. It's this miniseries by Joe Duffy. There's nothing like it. I can't really explain it. It's worth reading. So it was Bobby and was Rusty and Skids were part of this too. No, it was no, boom they boom. were the exterminate boom boom, right? Yep, yep, yep. Boom boom, siren, multiple man, but it turns out not the real multiple man, but just the one of the multiples. Yeah, yeah, and then Ariel of Coconut Grove, and right. a bunch of other characters you don't need to worry about, like the lobsters that talk. Oh, geez, yeah, I need to reread that now, just based on this premise, because the Vanisher is such a like low key, small time villain. Warlock comes with him, so they're like. Right sort of teamed up. And at the end of it, Beto's like, well, I may not be cut out for being a hero, but like, I'm a better person than all of you. So I'm leaving. And so he leaves. He quits after he quit. (laughs) But he doesn't go back to the new mutants. That's what's interesting. 
he decides instead, he like pops up in, I think, a power pack issue. Like Wheezy sets it up in like the mm-hmm. other title that she's writing. But he starts like trying to be a vigilante by himself in New York City. And he's like not very good at it. Yeah. I believe he attacks the power pack. Uh, like, <laughs> he's not a, not a friend to the power pack. Yeah. You know, and like Warlock eventually is like, we've got to go home. And he comes home just in time. Wheezy has taken over the book and Cypher dies like immediately after he comes back. And then they all quit. Right. Because <laughs> then it goes to zero. Well, because initially they blame themselves for Doug getting killed. And then they think about it more. And in the way that teenagers are wont to do, they would rather blame someone else. So they blame right. Magneto. And that's where the whole Gossamer plot happens. Right, right, his romance. <laughs> I'd forgotten about that. Gossamer's a big don't worry about it. Although I would love if she came back now as like a threat to the new Iraqi world on Mars. Like if, if Gossamer came back as like a cosmic threat. If we got like a sunspot. Well, because her whole deal, because well, he's in space now with Deathbird advising mm-hmm. the Shi'ar. Right. And Gossamer's whole deal was that her hot, sexy, like coquettish sort of pinup girl self was like her larval stage and that one day she was going to become like a giant space monster. So it would as be one does like to do something with that. Yeah. Maybe. But otherwise listeners don't worry about Gossamer. When did you tap into the new mutants? What was your like introduction? Um, weirdly, because you're coming, I'm, I'm in, you know, it's because we're about a decade apart, I guess. Eight years yeah. Apart, but so. so my dad had this collection and right. so I was able to read stuff, but new mutants I came to later, I would say, actually, I think I read Inferno first. Oh, wow. That's a weird jumping in point. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, well, and I was so obsessed with Ileana's story in Inferno that then I wanted to go back and get the rest of it. And I had read the stuff in Uncanny that like with her and Kitty and, yeah. you know. Well, the Belasco stuff is so Is that intense. mini? Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, the I, original appearance where they go into his dimension and Kitty's aged, and not Kitty, uh, Ileana's aged up. It's yeah, just yeah, yeah. Insane. In uh, 160, I think. Yeah, I want to say I know, I'm bad a little at numbers. earlier. Yeah, no, it was Cockrum had come back at that point. I yeah. Think. So I came into it a little later. I think I jumped from Inferno to Demon Bear. Oh, wow. Yeah, Demon Bear is a formative book for me. Yeah, well, because it was like, what's available? You know, like, it was like, what does my dad have in the attic in, like, reader copy form? And then right. also, like, what's collected in trade? And not that much was collected in trade initially. So it was like, I think actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I think I read Inferno and then I read Fall of the Mutants before I ever read stories wow. in which Doug and Ileana are not dying so just interstitial kind of (laughs) interstitial adventures well the events because the new mutant stuff would be collected with the other Mm -hmm. books and the event trades what's funny is my first x-men comic was the genosha story the first genosha story but it wasn't even the beginning of the story it was it's that cover where wolverine depowered is on the train Mm -hmm. with rogue except it's not rogue it's carol danvers it's carol because she took over and everyone tells you like make it a you know your comics have to be a great jumping on point new readers will not tap in if they're confused there can be no more no issue that was more confusing than that issue because pretty confusing yeah yeah it was well because it's like so rogue has been assaulted well she's depowered and physically assaulted by one of the guards so she's all freaked out and carol the personality the carol personality says to her i'm taking over because you can't handle this right now yeah let me drive and so carol's driving wolverine's also depowered Madeline Pryor, meanwhile, in that arc, is being experimented on by the Genotians because at this point she's sold her soul by accident to Sim and her X gene has been activated. And so they're like, she's not reading as a mutant, but she's 
something's Something happening is happening. And then she develops her psychic powers and tortures the shit out of them all. And it's the first appearance of the Goblin Queen costume with her actually wearing it. Yeah. Besides, like, in the dream. And uh, it fucking rules. That is a great No, it's arc. awesome. Yeah, it is I great love arc. that arc. It is a wild jumping on point. I cannot imagine jumping on there. Because, like, my first X-Men comics were, like, X-Men 1 and Giant Size X-Men. Right, which is great, yeah. Yeah, so I had a grounding in it all before I got to the 80s stuff that would become my favorite, but I knew who the people were. So I got that X-Men issue, and that X-Men issue, and an issue of What The, which was the Mutant Beach Party issue. I miss What The. Yeah, me too, and it also had an Archie parody, which... I found funny at the time because I was I was an Archie reader. That's what got me into comics at first. But, you know, the Mutant Beach Party was a parody of all the X titles going mm-hmm. to you know, all the mutants were going to the beach. So I kind of got the jokes like I kind of got what they were trying to parody, but I didn't know the source material really like I, you know, because I wasn't a reader of the books yet. But so if there was ever a more confusing introduction to the X-Men and I still managed to become obsessed and then become this fan, it it worked. You know, they didn't have to be very linear to pull people in is my point. Yeah, and that's the thing is I think that Claremont wrote every issue and every story as such a self-contained piece that like, you know, he has these Byzantine wild plots, but you don't actually need to read every issue to get something out of it. Right, because some of them don't get resolved. Some of No, them some of those sl- plots <laughs> never go anywhere. You mentioned the Shadow King saga. Guess what, baby? He gets fired before that ever goes anywhere. So. Were you and you were on were you on the Rec Arts X-Men? boards or no i was on the uncanny x-men.net board but me like too around yeah. 2000 yeah what was your username i think it was like random s18 or something like that mine was revolve revolve <laughs> yeah i think i think i heard you mention that to fabian. very on brand yeah. yes well yes. yeah because fabian thought it was adorable that i gave two shits about that character he was like that's the worst story i ever wrote great cool he's yeah we actually we i mean i've known him a long time but we have gotten to chatting more because he's got his first crime novel came out yeah couple, and it, it's fantastic suburban dicks it just yeah. came out so very funny if you're yeah. a fabian fan from his episode of the pod it's a great episode even if you don't care about adam x the extreme it's only like 90 minutes i suggest having a listen because he's just so funny I actually hated the idea that it was going to be Adam X because I wanted it to be Gambit because it felt like that's mm. what Claire- Claremont was seeding. Claremont didn't seed any of it. The third Summer's brother is all Nicieza. The connection between Gambit and Sinister is that Claremont's intention was that both Gambit and Sinister were the psychic projections of the bully Nathan from the orphanage. Oh, right. Huh. Like a child's idea of the perfect supervillain and the perfect superhero. And it was this sort of permanently stunted child who was still at that orphanage in Nebraska and was tormenting Scott to this day. And so Gambit was like his good self and Mr. Sinister was his evil self. And that was the sort of vague connection between them. Oh, okay. And then obviously none of that. Happened. happened and eventually in x-men the end claremont did a gambit is the third summer's brother reveal but it was right. like he's a clone created by mr sinister so it's like don't worry about it mm. yeah and and that's not canon so don't worry about it at all yeah it's just a fun read but um i think it was one in one of those like uh uncanny x-men.net q a's or just explorations of unresolved threads was you know sinister says brothers at one point but that's a fabian comic that's fabian yeah but then then people went back and said but look you know gambit has the same powers his you know similar well and also he has the red eyes that was like the big smoking gun it was like he has red eyes i'm like lots of people have red lots of characters have red eyes yeah it's a fucking comic book 
Yeah, I don't know. We, now we went on that Adam X tangent, which I I appreciate Fabian. I think he's talented. Listen, think... I'd rather it be Adam X than Vulcan. So I'm glad that Fabian <laughs> got to do his story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't. I wasn't really. I mean, I love Ed Brubaker. I think he's fantastic, but I wasn't. I also love Ed Brubaker. I think Ed Brubaker's X Men is bad, and Ed Brubaker agrees with me. Is my understanding. Yeah. So yeah. I, you know, I'm not. I don't feel bad saying so. It has its moments. There are a couple moments. Vulcan is not one of those moments. At least. Yeah, I think you. I think. I mean, it's it's so. Ch- there. Are, I think you outlined. I think in that same Fabian interview, you talked about the eras that really got you psyched about being an X Men fan. And for me, it was Claremont, obviously, and then that Fabian era, and then Grant Morrison. Morrison for me was just a game changer. Same for me. It really is Claremont up through Age of Apocalypse, which is when Fabian leaves. Yeah, and then. Morrison and then now and I've retroactively come to really love the Mike Carey run but I was so mad about the decimation at the time that I wasn't reading that regularly as it was coming out has there ever been a time where you just shut off and you weren't reading any X completely so what spurred the podcast like I loved House of X and Powers of 10 so much and it felt like Jonathan Hickman had revived this thing that I had loved so much and that I felt had been ruined by corporate whatever. I mean, Inhumans uh-huh. versus X-Men was so offensive to me that I was just like, I can't spend money on this anymore, you know? Oh, wow. So I had dropped off midway through Bendis because it just wasn't vibing with it. I was still reading, like, some of the ancillary titles. I like Bendis. It's just like I Bendis like Bendis, X-Men. Yeah. On the X-Men, it wasn't, like, the right fit for me, but he's written other stuff I absolutely love. Mm-hmm. And I liked aspects of it. Like, I liked his teen Jean Grey. I thought she was great. Yes, I thought she was a great character. My thing is, like, I'm an Emma partisan, and I didn't really like how he wrote Emma, and that is, like, because I was, here, what it really is, is, like, Avengers versus X-Men was the first time I was, like, after the decimation, I had slowly come back, and then AVX, I was, like, I am offended by this. Yeah, <laughs> goodbye. You know? Um, I am a psych, as much as I'm a Claremont apologist, I'm also a Cyclops apologist, so I like the idea that he's complicated and not, makes tough decisions. I don't really buy him as a villain. But I don't think he ever was. Yeah. I think that Bendis's Cyclops is the best part of Bendis's run for mm-hmm. sure. Um, but just overall, I just wasn't vibing with it. Yeah. But anyway, I came back and now I'm back and now I've read pretty much everything I missed and uh, I feel okay about missing most of it, if I'm being honest. You know, I did, I will say, I came back in, I was reading Rosenberg. I did come back in there. I like that run a lot. What really actually brought me back in was Mystery and Madripoor by Jim Zub because, like, they mm-hmm. fixed Psylocke, and I had been begging for someone to do that for my yeah. entire life because she body swaps when I'm one year old, and I spent my entire <laughs> life like, please, someone fix this. Yeah. And they finally did, and so I was like, well, now I got to see what Betsy's up to, right? So yeah. I was reading that pretty consistently, but I wasn't, I don't know, I mixed on it, and then it was really just this new era blew my fucking brain out, you know? It just felt it felt like the natural next step from the Morrison stuff, and to me, when I read, I remember that first issue of E for Extinction and just being beside myself, just being like, okay, this is Claremont in overdrive. I've often said that I think that Morrison is in many ways the antithesis of the Claremont run, and that mm-hmm. then Hickman is sort of the synthesis that brings those two takes on the X-Men together to create something new. Huh. If we want to get, like, Hegelian with it. Yeah, no, I like it. I think there's de- those are definitely the big the, the big three just in right. Yeah, the core, I would the agree core team. for sure. Yeah. yeah. So to take it back. Oh right, we're, we should, we should be talking spot. about Beto. Yeah. Yeah. What's interesting is once he's back, he really is sort of 
back, but he is the one who kind of pushes them. We're not going to listen to Magneto anymore. We're yeah. cutting loose. That's when they merge with the ex-Terminators, including Boom Boom, who he already knew because of Fallen Angels, which was a nice bit of connective tissue between the two teams. Right. Then Cable shows up and the whole book really changes. What's interesting is like in the part where Wheezy is still on the book and the characters are still sort of recognizably themselves, it makes a lot of sense that Beto reacts well to Cable. Yeah. Between Xavier and Magneto, Cable is the first one that Beto has any respect for. Because he's pres- he's present. Yeah, he's there. He seems like he gives a shit and he values their opinions and asks them what they think. Even yeah. if he's then like, well, here's why you're wrong and you should do this. But he he takes like input in a way that is exciting. Well, he's the first like father figure who is around, which is a big thing for anyone looking for that. And also, like you said, engages with them. I mean, Xavier went to space. Magneto left. Cable's it. And his own father betrayed him numerous times. Well, that's the thing is that right after he embraces Cable as this new father figure, he gets news that his father has died. Mm -hmm. That's when he leaves the team again. And this was Liefeld writing the character out, which I think is interesting. Liefeld straight up writes him out in 98, 99, like right at the end of New Mutants. Was that 98? Yeah, 98 or 99. Yeah. Because he has to go down to Rio to handle his father's assets. He's now the CEO of DeCorsia Industries. Mm. And he goes with this guy, Gideon, who is also a mutant, who is an old family friend. And looks just like Professor X with a ponytail. With a high pony. He's bald, but he has a high pony coming out the back sometimes it's green it depends on the colorist super confusing as a young reader wildly confusing character and it will only get wilder so hold that thought Gideon's an episode unto himself he really is yeah so then when we get to X-Force which is the relaunched book we see little bits of like what's going on with him in Brazil Gideon is now like mentoring him in the business world. He's learning to be this cutthroat business shark. Yeah. Um, but it's kind of amazing. We then, once Liefeld leaves the book, learn that it's all actually a nefarious scheme, that Gideon is one of the externals. What you may ask is an external. Well, thankfully, Teeny Howard explained it more clearly than it's ever been explained before in Excalibur Volume 4, and then killed most of them off, which was a great choice. (laughs) I thought that was amazing. I will miss Kandra until she eventually comes back, because she's fun. But Cruel and Absalom and all those guys definitely can go. Gideon is one of the ones she left alive, because he does have all these plot hooks. But the externals are... A group of mutants, there are 10 of them who are known to exist. Apocalypse and Selene, who are previously existing characters, are retconned into being externals. But they are not the 10, or the 12. <laughs> not they're not the 12, the 12, right? No, yeah. they're 10, they're not yeah. the 12. The 12 is a different <laughs> set of mutants. Of cool, like, powerful mutants. Doesn't turn out to be very cool, unfortunately. But yeah, yes, no. no, that's the other conversation <laughs> we're having is, well, so there's two questions going on at the time. It's like, who are the 12, right? Because right. the 12 are prophesied to defeat Apocalypse, but then also... Who is the 11th external? Because there's supposed to be an 11th external. And Gideon thinks that it's Sunspot. So he actually. Right. Yeah. Is, is there overlap him. in this Venn diagram of like the 12 and the externals? Um, now that I think about it, no. Except for the fact that they're apocalypse related. 
Right. The 11th external is never revealed, by the way, but the implication is that it's Cannonball. Yes, I remember a lot of heavy hinting that of that in the uh, Capullo, Capullo run. Right. What happens with an external is the first time they die, they come back and it's part of their mutation and then they can never die again. They will always come back. Mm-hmm. They're basically Highlander. Yeah. There was a rumor for many years because eventually Celine just kills them all and it's like, don't worry about it. That plot's over. <laughs> I fixed it. <laughs> there was a rumor that it was because the Highlander people sued Marvel. My understanding is that's not actually true. But if it had been true, I feel like they might have had a case. It's like Rob Liefeld saw Highlander, thought it was cool, and just went for it. I mean, it's hard, it seems like such it's, it's hard to be that specific about that idea. The idea of immortality is as old as time. But but it's also like they get more powerful if they kill the other ones. Like there's yeah. a very like there can be only one like <laughs> vibe to it. Like Celine eventually eats all of the other ones besides Apocalypse. It becomes the mega external. Yeah. So anyway, it's not Cannonball. Don't worry about it. We'll get to that next week in the Cannonball episode. Because that's be surprise, fun. that's next week's episode. Basically, Gideon realizes that Sunspot's not an external, so he is really annoyed because what a waste of time. <laughs> Put in all this time mentoring this non-external. Right. It's like, oh, you're not even an external. This is annoying. <laughs> so he hands Beto over to Dr. Segismund Joshua, which is a real mad scientist name. Yeah. And Dr. Joshua just starts doing all kinds of wild experiments on him, and X-Force rescues him. And once they rescue him, he joins the team officially, and this is the Niciesa run. This is where it begins. Which is a, a particular golden era of that series. The, I would agree. The Niciesa Capullo arc, uh, and maybe the Tony Daniel stuff as well. Like it- and because of those experiments, he now has a broader power set. Because previously, mm-hmm. he could absorb all this solar energy, and it made him really strong, but he was not invulnerable right he's like a glass cannon but he has to fight you up close yeah and what this power up does is it lets him basically blast out the solar energy as like concussive energy heat Mm -hmm. energy blast which that is helpful because that lets him not run right into the freaking fray if he's not invulnerable which you know could be problematic. Yeah. And this is this is also in the post uh, executioner song era, if I'm not mistaken, where Cable is gone. It's for a leading while. up to Executioner's song, okay. and then is like through yeah, because like that's basically yes, he rejoins. That leads into Executioner's song, and then Cable is apparently killed. There's a cute bit in uh, I want to say maybe 22 where mm-hmm. he and Cannonball find Gray Malkin Cable's like orbital ship and they right. find Cable's like files on them and unlike Xavier's it's a lot of file, file finding yeah yeah but unlike Xavier's file that says Sunspot is a piece of shit <laughs> he's <not> gonna be bad <laughs> Cable's is like. Sunspot and Cannonball are my best students. I think of them as like they are my own sons. They are my legacy. And so that is like a big it's intense, yeah. boost for their self-esteem, particularly for Sunspots. And that leads him to a fun confrontation with Gideon <laughs> where he beats the ever-living hell out of Gideon and uh, tells Gideon like, Cable's the only teacher who ever taught me anything useful. Like, fuck you, Gideon. Yeah, you're, you're a bad dad. Yeah, and then Cable returns, which is exciting for everybody. And Cable reveals that Gideon actually killed Beto's father, that it wasn't a heart attack, it was poisoning. 
I feel like writing Beto's father out was kind of a mistake because I yeah. found him to be an interesting character. He was briefly the rook of the Hellfire Club, and I liked the idea that he was so rich and so ruthless that Shaw invites him to join the Lord's Cardinal, even though he's not a mutant. That is a cool character. Yeah. It's like him and Donald Pierce are like the two non-mutants in the group. But Pierce goes rogue really fast. Dekorshta, you get the sense he would be fine with like mutant supremacy over the earth as long as he still has money. Yeah, as long as he has his money and he can do his machinations. And he's in with them. Like he's like, yeah. that's fine. You know, like he doesn't have a problem with like Celine or whatever. Like it's like, okay, sure. Yeah, I mean, there's so much Hellfire Club stuff. Like, I mean, even literally from page one when you meet uh, Beto, you see the, the influence and how tied into the Hellfire Club his entire story is going to be. From mm-hmm. I mean, really every major moment. Every beat in his life, really. Whether it's his dad being part of it or, you know, the Hellfire Club get, killing Juliana or, you know, Juliana coming back, quote unquote. Yeah, which we'll get to. That's yeah, crazy. Yeah. So what happens basically after that is that Strife is apparently killed in Executioner's Song. So the MLF, who are X-Force's big rivals, the Mutant Liberation Front, have a new leader, Rainfire, who we don't initially see. Whomst is Rainfire? There's then a whole situation where the MLF tries to assassinate Henry Peter Gyrick, who, if you don't remember, is the head of Project Wide Awake, which does all the Sentinel stuff. And... Rainfire, who looks weirdly like Sunspot, huh, is trying to escape with Moonstar, who seems to have betrayed everyone and joined the MLF, and Locus, who's a teleporter, who everybody thought was Ilyana, so they made her a black character suddenly. Like, she just changes race between issues, and I think it was literally just to reassure fans it wasn't Ilyana. Which, there's so so many other ways to do that. I know, but whatever. It's (laughs) comics, comics, right? Yeah, comics. So Sunspot blasts them and saves Gyrick's life, but he and Locus have their powers interact in like a weird way, and they both apparently explode and die. Mm-hmm. That is where, again, Sunspot leaves the narrative for a while. That's, I think, X-Force 28. Yeah. I think that is probably a good moment to pause for the Cerebro character file on Sunspot. I will take you through his publication history from graphic novel number four, The New Mutants, all the way up to the present, because we're about to get into Rainfire. So I feel like now is the the time to to give some context. (laughs) Exactly. And then we will come back for more with Alex Segura. We will talk about Alex's favorite storylines of the 90s and beyond, and then we will answer your questions. Keep listening, and we'll be right back. X-Men, X-Men. Roberto da Corsta, often called Bobby, Berto, or more recently Beto, with his last name written about 50 different ways over the years, but best known by the codename Sunspot, is one of the original New Mutants, the class of students Charles Xavier recruited in the early 80s. Created by Chris Claremont and Bob McCloud, Beto hails from Brazil. He's the hot-headed heir to a sizable fortune, but faces discrimination due to his mixed-race background. Following the New Mutants as they transitioned into X-Force, Beto became a major character in that book but found his story complicated by a series of retcons surrounding his relationship to the villain Rainfire. In the time since, he has been a staunch ally of the X-Men, for a time the leader of the Hellfire Club, and, in the most striking departure from his original context, a high-profile member and then leader of the Avengers. Beto debuts alongside the rest of the original New Mutants, besides pre-existing character Karma, in 1982's Marvel graphic novel number 4, The New Mutants. 
Born in Brazil to a wealthy family with a black father and white mother, he's a rising star in the world of football, that's soccer for us Americans, but faces racial abuse from his peers. When he's 14, racist rivals attack him during a public match, and his mutant powers catalyze in self-defense. Beto begins absorbing sunlight into his skin and becomes superhumanly strong. He fights off the boys attacking him, his skin turning pitch black as he crackles with solar energy, and he frightens the crowd into fleeing the stadium. He's aided in the chaos by his father Emmanuel and his girlfriend, a white Brazilian named Juliana Sandoval. The incident at the football game attracts Charles Xavier's attention as he moves to recruit a new team of international students, but also draws the eye of Donald Pierce, an anti-mutant bigot who is part of the inner circle of the Hellfire Club. Pierce kidnaps Juliana and demands a ransom from Beto, but when he arrives to pay them off, it becomes clear the real goal is to eliminate the new mutant. Beto fights back, but isn't able to fight all the Hellfire agents off by himself. He's rescued by Xiang Koiman, Karma, and Danny Moonstar, but tragedy strikes amid the triumph. A Hellfire operative shoots at the energy-depleted Beto, and Juliana jumps into the crossfire to take the bullet and save his life. She's killed almost instantly, and Beto swears vengeance. Beto travels with the new mutants back to America, where Xavier has been kidnapped by Pierce. They defeat him, as well as another young mutant, Sam Guthrie, who's been tricked into working for Pierce. Beto wants to kill Pierce to avenge Juliana, but resists the urge, instead agreeing to remand Pierce, who had gone rogue from the Hellfire Club, to the custody of club operative Tessa. Beto joins Xi'an, Danny, Rain Sinclair, and, in a surprise turnaround, Sam Guthrie, in formally establishing the new mutants class at Xavier's School for Gifted Youngsters. Beto takes the codename Sunspot, and while at first he doesn't trust Sam, who takes the codename Cannonball, the two bond over time and eventually become best friends. Not long into the New Mutants' ongoing title, the New Mutants are horrified when team leader Karma is apparently killed in an explosion. Beto blames himself, believing he should have been able to pull her to safety, and he bristles at Xavier's insistence that they accept Karma's demise. He quits the team briefly, but is convinced by his friends to return. When he arrives back at the school, he learns Xavier has decided the students would be decompressing on a vacation in Brazil, with Beto's mother Nina, who is an archaeologist planning an expedition on the Amazon River. As Beto's family backstory is further explored, we learn that his parents have a somewhat estranged relationship due to their commitments to their individual careers. Emmanuel is a cutthroat, dedicated businessman who has built up a significant fortune in Rio from humble beginnings. Nina is an adventurer at heart who can't bring herself to stay at home. Beto is closer with his father, but clearly loves his mother dearly. Before the team leaves for Rio de Janeiro, they appear alongside Spider-Man and the street-level heroic duo Cloak and Dagger in Marvel Team-Up Annual No. 6 by Bill Mantlo and Ron Friends. On a trip into the city, the New Mutants are accosted by a street gang. Beto and Rain are kidnapped and used to test experimental drugs by the men who once used similar drugs to create Cloak and Dagger. The drug supercharges their powers and drives them to madness, but Cloak and Dagger are able to restore them to normal, at least for now. Back in their own title, the New Mutants fly to Rio to join Beto's mother on her archaeological expedition. Nina and Emmanuel embarrass their son by having an argument in front of his friends when they visit the palatial family home for dinner. When mysterious assailants attempt to kidnap Nina before she can begin the journey, Beto is forced to fight them off. Once they're on the trip, a mutiny aboard the ship sends them pitched over a waterfall. They wash up in Nova Roma, a secret colony of ancient Romans who have been hidden in the Amazon jungle for centuries. Beto and Sam are pressed into service as gladiators, but once they display their mutant powers, they are freed and treated as royalty. The new mutants come into conflict with the immortal mutant sorceress Selene in her first appearance, who has a bunch of evil plans involving a coup in Nova Roma. Eventually, Beto tosses her into a volcano to her apparent death. Don't worry about it right now. The kids are aided by a young Nova Roman noblewoman named Amara Aquila, who joins the team under the codename Magma. 
In the aftermath of this adventure, Beto discovers to his horror that his father, Emmanuel, was behind the sabotage of Nina's expedition and the attempted coup in Nova Roma because he wanted to seize the land and exploit the jungle for its natural resources. Beto rebukes his father and severs all ties with him. Black King Sebastian Shaw, meanwhile, invites Emmanuel to join the Lord's Cardinal of the Hellfire Club as White Rook. This plot never really goes anywhere, which is unfortunate because it's a very cool hook. Beto's mostly in the background for a while after that, as the story shifts to introduce new teammate Ilyana Rasputina, codenamed Magic. In issue 22, we find Beto acting out of character, with bits of rage, and his powers are on the fritz again with shadow effects similar to the powers displayed by the superhero Cloak. When Rain exhibits similar symptoms, with powers drawn from Dagger, it becomes clear it's a result of the experimental drugs that were forced on them by Cloak and Dagger's enemies. Magic is able to exercise the strange phenomena from Beto and Rain, so don't worry about it. Then Beto and Amara get kidnapped and drugged and taken to Los Angeles to fight in a mutant gladiatorial arena. In the ring, Beto ends up in a rematch against one of the men who tried to kidnap his mother during the Nova Roma arc. After the rest of the team frees them, Beto is shocked to discover the operator of the fight club is Xi'an, possessed by the Shadow King. Beto is particularly offended that Xavier concealed his knowledge of Xi'an's survival from the new mutants, and outraged when Xavier names Magneto as the school's new headmaster when he has to go to Shi'ar space. Beto's discontent grows from issue to issue, and eventually he quits the team after deciding superheroism is hopeless once he meets the omnipotent threat called the Beyonder. He returns to Rio and stays there with his mother for nine issues. He's therefore the only one of the new mutants who isn't killed and resurrected by the Beyonder, which leaves the others deeply traumatized. Beto returns to the team after they've recovered with the help of Emma Frost, the Hellfire Club's white queen. Now back with the team, Beto briefly finds himself stranded in a dystopian future similar to, but distinct from, the days of future past. He's appalled that the future versions of Sam and Danny in this timeline are prepared to abandon the Earth to Sentinel rule, and upon his return to the present, he's determined to do everything he can to avert that future. This rededicates Beto to his heroic pursuits, but then his story suddenly takes something of an abrupt detour. Along with his techno-organic alien teammate, Warlock, Beto spins off into a miniseries called Fallen Angels by Joe Duffy and Kerry Gamble. In the first issue, Beto gets angry and accidentally kills Sam with his powers. Distraught, he goes to Magneto for advice, but the new headmaster is absent. What is present is a folder of Xavier's notes on Beto, which Beto takes the opportunity to read. He's devastated to read Xavier's assessment, that Beto has severe anger problems, and his arrogance has set him to follow in his criminal father's footsteps. Beto runs away from the school, arriving in New York City, and deciding that since he's apparently temperamentally unsuited to be a hero, he'll be a villain instead. He ends up falling in with the Fallen Angels, a street gang led by the classic X-Men villain called The Vanisher, and including a teenage mutant runaway named Tabitha Tabby Smith, codenamed Boom Boom. After some adventures with this extremely strange team, Beto realizes a life of crime doesn't suit him after all, and he decides to leave at the end of the miniseries. He doesn't return to the New Mutants just yet, though, and instead tries his hand at crime fighting in Manhattan, but he's extremely bad at it, like he ends up fighting the Power Pack. The Power Pack, if you're unaware, are literal children. Beto finally rejoins the New Mutants under new writer Louise Simonson in issue 59, just as the franchise-wide event Fall of the Mutants is beginning. Beto's therefore with the team when their teammate Doug Ramsey, aka Cypher, is murdered by the villain called the Animator. Doug's death leaves the team rattled and swiftly losing faith in their teacher Magneto. Then Gossamer happens. I honestly would save this for a Gossamer episode, but how likely is there to be a Gossamer episode anytime soon? She's appeared barely more than one Zaladane, so I guess we gotta do it now. Gossamer is a sexy pinup girl alien with empathic manipulation powers who plays Beto and Sam against each other. The team teaches her about genuine human emotion and love and friendship and whatnot, and she tags along with them for a while through the franchise-wide event Inferno, in which the New Mutants team up with X-Factor students, the Exterminators, to save 13 mutant babies who have been kidnapped for demon sacrifice. 
The babies are entrusted to the U.S. authorities, who promise to reunite them with their parents. During the event, the new mutant see Magneto and the rest of the Hellfire Club's Lord's Cardinal apparently conspiring with the demon Mystere, further shattering their trust in him as a mentor. After Magic sacrifices herself to stop the Inferno, and Gossamer returns to her home planet, it turns out she's destined to evolve into a world-destroying cosmic threat, don't worry about it, the new mutants arrive at Xavier's to find it reduced to rubble. They overhear Magneto plotting with Emma Frost, Celine, and Sebastian Shaw, and they feel betrayed by how far he has fallen in his guilt and grief since Doug was murdered. Beto swears he will never be part of the Hellfire Club, but Magneto begs to differ. He predicts Beto will be the first to join them. Forsaking Magneto entirely, the New Mutants formally recruit the Exterminators, Rusty Collins, Skids, Richter, and Beto's former fellow fallen angel, Boom Boom, and merge the two teams. They then move into X-Factor's headquarters, which is a living spaceship. Don't worry about it right now. Not too many issues later, rising star Rob Liefeld joins the title and begins dictating plot developments alongside Louis Simonson. Together, they introduce the new character Cable, a time-traveling mutant from the future who begins mentoring the new mutants and reshaping them into a proactive paramilitary organization. Better respects Cable and responds to his instruction more readily than he has with past teachers. Simonson is pushed off the book after issue 97, and Liefeld immediately moves the character of Sunspot in a new direction. In New Mutants 98, Better learns that Emmanuel has died of an apparent heart attack. A mysterious mutant named Gideon, apparently an old family friend of the Dacostas, brings Beto back to Rio to become CEO of his father's holdings. Beto's sad to leave Sam and Tabby, but feels a responsibility to his family. After issue 100, the book relaunches as X-Force, plotted and drawn by Rob Liefeld with scripting by Fabian Musiesa. While he isn't part of X-Force initially, Beto appears in several cameos as we see him learning the ways of the cutthroat business world from Gideon. He doesn't realize that Gideon is actually one of the externals. They're immortal mutants, it's very silly, don't worry about it, and suspects Beto may be the prophesied 11th external. When Gideon realizes he's got the wrong kid, he drops Beto like a stone and hands him over to a mad scientist named Dr. Segismund Joshua. This is around when Liefeld abruptly leaves the title to co-found Image Comics, and Misiesa assumes full writing duties. Dr. Joshua overloads Beto with solar energy, nearly killing him. After he's rescued by what remains of the former New Mutants, now calling themselves X-Force, Beto discovers his powers have been expanded greatly. Instead of just charging up to become superhumanly strong, he's now able to fire concussive blasts of solar energy. He becomes an official member of X-Force and accompanies the team through the franchise-wide event Executioner's Song, in which Cable is apparently killed. While investigating his spaceship, Beto and Sam learn that Cable regarded them both as like sons to him and are deeply moved. Lots of external drama happens that you don't need to worry about, but Beto gets to beat the absolute shit out of Gideon and pull a you're not my real dad, Cable's my real dad sort of speech on him, which is fun. When Cable returns from his apparent death, he reveals to Beto that Gideon had actually murdered Emmanuel de Costa to get access to Beto. Oh boy, now it's time for Rainfire! So, X-Force's main enemy is a terrorist group called the Mutant Liberation Front, which was initially led by Strife, see the Strife episode, until Strife bit the big one in Executioner's Song. Their new leader is a shadowy figure called Rainfire, and he's somehow recruited former New Mutant Danny Moonstar to his cause, shocking her old friends. In X-Force 28, X-Force prevents the MLF from assassinating anti-mutant government official Henry Peter Gyrick, but Sunspot's power begins interacting strangely with the powers of another new MLF member, the teleporter Locus. There's a gigantic explosion, and both Beto and Locus are believed killed. It quickly becomes clear that Rainfire, who looks like an evil sunspot with a wig on, is much like Strife in that he's using the MLF to advance his own goals, and doesn't actually care about mutant rights. Eventually, he turns on them, and in Fabian Nicias' final issue on the title, he defeats almost all of the MLF members without breaking a sweat. Moonstar gives him some trouble, so he murders her pegasus. 
She has a Pegasus. Check out her episode. We don't have time right now. Then, much to the horror of X-Force, Rainfire powers down and reveals that he's Sunspot. A crazy Sunspot from the future or whatever. We don't get time to deal with it because the Age of Apocalypse reality warp begins immediately. Niciesa is fired from the title during that event. And when the book returns for issue 44, it's under new writer Jeff Loeb. Cable's able to use his telepathic powers to heal Beto, destroying the alternate Rainfire personality. Beto rejoins the team while his best friend Sam graduates to the X-Men. But not everyone is willing to trust Beto because of his actions as Rainfire. He's mostly a background character through the low run, but takes on a prominent role again under new writer John Francis Moore in the road trip era of the late 90s. The team abandons Cable and strikes out on their own, and Beto is horrified when his accounts are frozen due to a lawsuit against Akoshta International. Without Sam to keep them company, Beto and Tabby, that's Boom Boom, who has been dating Sam for most of the 90s, are lonely and feel drawn to each other. They kiss, but then feel extremely guilty, especially when Sam surprises the group with a visit. They can't resist another kiss, and this time, Sam walks in on them. He's furious, and his friendship with Beto becomes strained. Beto and Tabby try to make their relationship work, but there's so much baggage it's hard to turn it into anything functional. This is where the big Rainfire retcon happens. Rainfire resurfaces and starts killing people, and Beto is confused because he thought he was Rainfire. It turns out Rainfire is actually a mutant with a protoplasmic form, who copied Beto's DNA during the genetic experiments Dr. Joshua performed on Beto for Gideon. Remember Gideon? This is a well-thought-out retcon, honestly, but it's still pretty nuts. After he copied Beto's DNA, Rainfire was also able to control Beto telepathically, and that's why it looked like Rainfire was revealed to be Beto all along. There's a big goofy fight, Rainfire is apparently defeated and blasted into slime, and X-Force remains custody of the slime to Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Beto regains control of his finances, but his relationship with Tabby is getting worse and worse, and when Sam returns to X-Force, things just get more awkward. Eventually, Tabby decides to dump Beto so that they can remain friends. Then he gets deported back to Brazil by the INS because there are pictures of him accompanying the infamous terrorist Rainfire. In Rio, he's visited by Celine, who tells him Rainfire is actually still alive, and the S.H.I.E.L.D. agents who took the Rainfire goop into custody were imposters. There's a goofy plot afoot that you don't need to worry about, but the world is in peril, and Celine recruits Beto to stop help Rainfire. They're able to destroy Rainfire again, but then Celine betrays everyone because, obviously... She tries to convince Beto to become Black Rook and join her at the Hellfire Club, promising to use her magical powers to resurrect his girlfriend, Juliana Sandoval. Remember Juliana? She died saving Beto's life in her first appearance. Beto is ashamed, but he can't resist the offer and leaves with Celine. Deals with Celine never go the way you think they will, though, and the resurrected Juliana awakens in the body of a girl named Marissa who had been left brain dead in a coma. Juliana's memories quickly begin fading from the combined woman's head, and Beto eventually decides to let Marissa go and live in peace, even if it means he will never truly get Juliana back. This is John Francis Moore's final X-Force story. Beto's creator, Chris Claremont, then begins writing the character again, bringing him over to the new series Extreme X-Men, where it's revealed he has begun leading the Los Angeles branch of X-Corp, an international mutant rights outreach group. Amara and Skids are working for him there, and all is going well until he discovers some corruption within the organization. His investigation provokes the evil telepathic sadist Elias Bogan, do not worry about it, who traumatically mind-controls Beto and Amara into kissing. He declares there's no passion between them and wipes their memories of the strange event. Beto and Amara still remember what they learned about corruption within X-Corp, though, so they team up with the Extreme X-Men and root out Bogan and his forces. The X-Corp LA building is destroyed in the final battle. Beto's in the background for a while after that, popping up for a few team-ups with former New Mutants and X-Force members. The version of the Hellfire Club Selene was running appears to have fallen apart, don't worry about it, and Beto is invited to join Sebastian Shaw's relaunch of the club as Black King, serving under Shaw as Lord Imperial. 
Beto agrees, believing he can use the club's resources to help humankind. He's accompanied by Sage, a.k.a. Tessa. There's a lot to get into there, so go listen to her episode if you haven't. Eventually, Donald Pierce attacks and Shaw is knocked out of leadership, just as Sage had secretly predicted. She helps Beto ascend to the rank of Lord Imperial and sees full control of the club. Shortly after this, the event called the Decimation reduces the worldwide mutant population to about 200 people, and Beto is one of the few to retain his mutant gifts. Donald Pierce causes more trouble in the 2008 series Young X-Men, written by Mark Guggenheim, and Beto teams up with Sam, Amara, and a group of young Xavier School students to defeat him once more. When the X-Men set up shop in San Francisco, Cyclops appoints him alongside Moonstar as a mentor for these few remaining students post-decimation. During the run of Young X-Men, Beto also stars alongside Sam in the miniseries Astonishing Tales Mojo World by Jonathan Hickman and Nick Patara, where they have a fun adventure in Mojo World. It's cute. As Young X-Men unfolds, Beto resigns from the Hellfire Club to become a teacher full-time. It's an awkward fit, and it doesn't last long. In Zeb Wells' relaunch of New Mutants, Beto rejoins his old teammates in a new squad of X-Men led by Sam, reclaiming the name New Mutants from their youth. During the Utopia crossover, he gets wrecked on national television while protesting anti-mutant legislation and is pretty embarrassed. His time in the new New Mutants squad is marked by the deepening of his crush on Amara, and he reveals he's developed true feelings for her after she's beaten nearly to death by their resurrected teammate Cypher, who's under the control of Selene during the franchise-wide event Necrotia. Before they can address the matter, Beto and Amara are dragged with the rest of the team into limbo to settle an old score of magics. There they do battle with the Inferno Babies. Remember the babies? The New Mutants and Exterminators rescued the babies during Inferno and gave them to the government to be returned to their parents. It turns out the government raised them in limbo as killing machines instead. Magic has been to the future and witnessed the coming deaths of the New Mutants, and Beto, in dire straits, asks her how Amara will die. Coldly, Magic informs him that Amara does not love him romantically, but Beto doesn't care. He still wants to save her. He ultimately sacrifices himself to protect Amara during the final battle in Limbo, and confesses his love for her as he lays dying. Luckily, Magic's long game at last clicks together, and the New Mutants are saved and restored to hell. This is the end of the Zeb Wells run, and he's followed up by writers Dan Abnett and Andy Lanning. In the DNA run, the team fractures after Magic's machinations are revealed, but Beto and Amara stay with the brute. Amara begins rebuking Beto more harshly instead of humoring his advances, and eventually she starts dating Mephisto? Like, the Lord of Hell Mephisto. Don't worry about it, we will get to this someday in the Magma episode, I guess. After Amara and Mephisto break up, she does plant a kiss on Beto in the final issue of New Mutants, Volume 3, but as the book is ending, it doesn't really go anywhere. This is where Sunspot's fortunes as a character change enormously, as he and Sam are added to the roster of The Avengers by writer Jonathan Hickman, who'd previously written their Mojo World Adventure miniseries. Sam and Beto had decided to retire from heroics after the company-wide event Avengers vs. X-Men, but find it impossible to resist an offer to join the most beloved and high-profile superhero team in the world. I'm going to gloss over the Avengers stuff somewhat because this is not an Avengers podcast, but there's a lot of Beto content here worth reading. The critical developments. Beto is attracted to Izzy Kane, a.k.a. Smasher, the first human member of the Shi'ar Imperial Guard, but she falls in love with Sam instead. And Beto subverts the evil organization Advanced Idea Mechanics, AIM, and recruits a number of their operatives as double agents working for him. The Avengers eventually break up because Captain America and Iron Man are fighting again for the billionth time or whatever. Honestly, I don't even remember what it was this time. I think Iron Man altered Captain America's memories? Look it up if you want. There's a time jump, and afterwards Sam and Izzy are now married with a baby son. They move to Shi'ar space to be a family, leaving Beto lonely. He channels that emotion into figuring out a way to help the world with the Avengers all on bad terms. Staging a hostile takeover of AIM, Beto seizes control of the organization and repurposes it for heroics, eventually funding his own team of Avengers, Avengers Idea Mechanics. 
then comes in Humans vs. X-Men. As always, don't worry about it. In a relaunch of New Avengers, now written by Al Ewing, Beto directs his spin-off Avengers in operations around the globe. A lot of stuff happens that you don't need to worry about, but it's an Al Ewing book, so it's worth reading if you're in the mood. It's fun. At one point, Beto fakes his own death, and that's very funny. Most of the series involves conflict between Beto's Avengers and S.H.I.E.L.D., which sees them as illegitimate. As the book concludes, relaunching as U.S. Avengers, they resolve their differences and AIM becomes a subsidiary of S.H.I.E.L.D. Beto takes the codename Citizen V as leader of this group and assumes new patriotic American branding. Then the Hydra Cap stuff happens, and if you think I'm going to cover Secret Empire on this podcast, you've lost your damn mind. In the end, Beto cedes control of AIM and declares that instead of Citizen V, he will become Citizen X. He later dies heroically in the 2019 company-wide event War of the Realms, but you truly don't have to worry about that, thanks to the 2019 soft reboot House of X and Powers of Ten by writer Jonathan Hickman, in which Beto is one of countless mutants to join the new mutant sovereign nation on the living island Krakoa. Presumably resurrected by the power of the five, Beto assists Monet Sancroix and Warren Worthington III in directing a reimagined X-Corp, and becomes the protagonist of a five-issue new mutants arc by Jonathan Hickman and Rod Rice. Rallying his old teammates for an adventure in space, Beto attempts to convince Sam to return to Earth and join his friends on Krakoa. He comes to understand Sam's commitment to his new family, and instead remains in Shi'ar space himself, where he begins a torrid affair with the rogue Shi'ar princess Deathbird, a former enemy of the X-Men, and sets himself up as an advisor to the throne. What new role waits for Hoberta de Korshta in deep space? We don't know just yet. But given Jonathan Hickman and Al Ewing's obvious affection for the character, there is no doubt he will be shining bright as the sun again in due time. X-Men, X-Men. Welcome back. We are here to talk more about Bobby DaCosta, Roberto DaCosta, <laughs> Beto, Sunspot. Bobby D. Bobby D, whatever you want to call him. Birdo, as Tabby and Sam call him. I am here again with Alex Segura. Alex, what are your favorite Sunspot storylines that we haven't talked about yet? What's your favorite stuff? There's one moment I think we, I don't, we skipped, we didn't touch on, but there's a cloak and dagger two-parter, if yeah. I remember correctly, where it's a Sienkiewicz story. And it's one, I think it's one of the last times Xavier's really, I want to say, involved in the mm-hmm. day-to-day of the New Mutants before he goes off into space. And at one point, Beto takes the same drug that I guess he and Rain get captured and injected with the drugs that created Cloak and Dagger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you see kind of uh, Beto unhinged, basically, and becoming the monster because yeah, it I makes think... them crazy. Yeah, and I think he, I think it played into a lot of fears he had too, just with his own mutant nature and just how he was perceived by the outside world. And I thought that was a really interesting arc for him. I still find his origin fairly compelling, though. You're right; there is a, a little bit of you know. You know, it's just a very much a story of the time. The Rainfire stuff is really, really something else. (laughs) I don't want to say it's one of my favorites, but it's definitely something that uh, merits. I will say one of my favorites is like uh, Rainfire. Why? Like adjacent. Yeah. Rainfire adjacent faves is I do love the reveal that Fabian does. Yes. Of Rainfire as Sunspot (laughs) right before Fabian gets fired from the book. So the plot then goes completely off the rails, but it's this thing where Rainfire, who like Google, quite honestly, Rainfire is R-E-I-G-N fire, like he is fire ruling over all. If you're not familiar with Rainfire, it's much like the Strife episode, you should Google Rainfire Marvel because 
I want you to see what this character looks like. He's one of the most '90s beings you could possibly imagine. He's up he there. He does with look very strife-like. Strife too. and M-plate, honestly, are like the, I, those are the ni- and onslaught. Like those are the yeah. '90s designs I think of as like the most '90s villain designs. He has like weird speech bubbles, so like yeah. you can tell he's speaking in a creepy, booming voice. He goes, "Your naive charm wore out its welcome with me quite a long time ago, Sam. The answer to where Bobby DeCosta has been since he disappeared months ago should have been quite clear." to you had you been capable of accepting the obvious and cannibal says but it can't be i mean sunspot was with us on the mission where we fought you and then he suddenly like deactivates his head yeah he well he's like pitch black in the way that sunspot is but he has like long flowing curly locks and those disappear when he powers down. So I guess, I guess it's like a sunspotty like, wig. Yeah, it's like a it's like a solar lace front or something. <laughs> it's actually not unlike late in the nineties, Polaris's hair just starts kind of like turning into smoke. They were yeah. into like hair power signatures at that time, which I don't mind that. I like when Gene has like a fiery yeah, I think it's moment. cool. I think it works. But basically, it is done here as a wig reveal. Like, he just, like, whips it off, basically. <laughs> and yes. then he goes, It is me! Rainfire is and has always been Hoberto da Costa. And he's got scary, like, vampire teeth and glowing red eyes. But it's Bobby! And everyone's, like, shocked and shocked and shocked. I forgot that Fabian left the book immediately after that. Yeah, because immediately thereafter, in literally the following issue, Age of Apocalypse hits. Right. And Fabian is fired midway through Age of Apocalypse. Right. So when it comes back, it's Jeff Loeb. I do have an Age of Apocalypse confession to make. Confess. (laughs) So at the height of my X-Men fandom... Age of Apocalypse was one of those moments where I just stopped reading. I think it was for a lot of people. My father read Age of Apocalypse and then like stopped and he'd been reading since the 60s and he was like, I think I'm good. Like, it's a good moment to tap out. Yeah, it's funny because I did the same thing with the Clone Saga with the Spider-Man stuff, though I read Mm. a lot of the Clone Saga, whereas with Age of Apocalypse, I think I had been burnt out because of the Clone Saga and I was like, this again, like... Well, this is the Bob Harris saga, really, right? Yeah, this is going to be uprooted. A lot of decisions were made at that time to push events in a way that was not always conducive to the best kind of storytelling, I would say. Where I think something like Legion Quest is actually really well done in the way it weaves in with the past stories and the the Charles and Eric World War II era stuff or Gabby Haller. And then suddenly everything is sending you into this alternate timeline. And at the time, we didn't have the same knowledge we have now where we're like, oh, it'll eventually come back. You know, it'll be fine. I thought, okay, this is the new thing. And Well, because they pretended it was. Like, right. Marvel actively pretended, like, this is the new status quo for the X-Men, which was, I was just obviously there for it. Yeah. a lie. But if yeah. you were a child, which I was, you were yeah. like, whoa, you know? So. Yeah, I forgot. I mean, I was, I had to, what was it, 98? So 90, That's 95. No, 95. So yeah, I was 15. I was like, mm-hmm. I, didn't, I didn't know. I mean, I was like, okay, right. if this is it, then I'm out. <laughs> and then yeah. I came back. I came back when they came back. But when they came back, X-Force got weird because that's when it turns into the low brun. Yeah. And they explain away Rainfire with like all of the protoplasmic <laughs> nonsense. It's a bad dream. Yeah. One story I really like that you had sort of alluded to earlier is actually in the John Francis Moore. Uh, it's actually at the very end of this title. Because yeah. then... He was on the book for a long time. Yeah, with like he, he was all the way through X-Force 100. Where is he now? Because I liked his X-Factor run was a lot of fun too with Steve Epting. He hasn't done a comic in a long time. I don't know mm. what he's up to. I think his last credit is like 2003. Oh, wow. Yeah, so maybe he's retired? I don't know. Yeah, maybe. In any case, 
he does this cool story at the end of his run in like issues 99 and 100 where basically earlier in the story, a couple months earlier, Beto leaves the team again because that's what he does. Beto got into Beto. He teams up with Celine to destroy Rainfire once and for all. Mm-hmm. Celine promises that if he joins her as part of the Hellfire Club as the new Black Rook, then she will give him power beyond his imaginings, yada, yada, yada. And he resists because it's Celine. She's obviously astoundingly evil. She is a villain. <laughs> yeah, one of the more, you know, amoral characters you're going to run into in this universe. She's just old enough that people are things to her and things mostly to be eaten. What she finally does to flip him and he agrees is she tells him that she will use her sorcery to resurrect Juliana Sandoval. Mm-hmm. his girlfriend who had died back in his first appearance, sacrificing herself for him. And because that is the thing that he has always... It's haunted him since day one, yeah. He agrees mm-hmm. to do it. But Salid and Blackheart uh, <laughs> sit down and do their whole... Because Celine has gotten Blackheart, the demon, to be... Mephisto's son, thing. yeah. Yeah, which is funny. Like it's She's just like, we're taking the Hellfire Club to real hell. <laughs> We're going to up the hell in Hellfire Club. But as with most deals with the devil, and a deal with Celine is pretty much always a deal with the devil, it doesn't mm-hmm. go exactly according to plan, because instead of recreating her body, it displaces her soul and her mind into the body of a girl who's in a persistent vegetative state. And once that girl wakes up, she slowly begins forgetting the memories that Juliana had. Like, she is Juliana, but she remembers being this other girl, and the Juliana memories start fading really quickly. It's tragic on many levels. It's horrible, honestly. It's a really upsetting story. And Beto is trying to keep tabs on her and eventually realizes that he can't do that and he, like it's it's not healthy for him to keep an eye on her but on the flip side her soul is trapped in this body yeah no it's wild the whole thing yeah. is wild but yeah. he does sort of feel like at least she's not dead anymore <laughs> it's but awkward. like yeah but what happened to the girl's soul before you know it's just i guess there's a lot well to... she's like brain dead like the yeah, body yeah, so... that the, the, you know so that's presumably that soul already left, I guess. Yeah, just a lot idea. to unpack there. Yeah. It's a lot to unpack. And guess what? <laughs> they never unpack it because right. then Moore's time on the book ends and X-Force ends up pivoting into a very different book. And the yeah. next time we see him is the uh, extreme X-Men stuff, the Elias Bogan stuff. Right, where he's part of X Corporation. Where he's leading X Corp LA, yeah. Mm. Which I thought that that book was so, I mean... Extreme X-Men was such a weird detour. It's a wild ride. Yeah. yeah, it's really... And Sage, which is was such a small character, becomes such an obsession for... For Claremont, for Claremont. Yeah. yeah. There's a very Claremonty scene. It is a real horror movie scene done well, mm-hmm. which is the scene where like he and Amara, he's always had a crush on Amara. Right. But Amara has never really reciprocated it. And Bogan forces them to kiss. Oh, right. Like, and they're stuck kissing like this, like trapped telepathically in it. And like... Tears start pouring down their faces because they want to stop. It's like this very profound, weird violation in a very Claremonty sexual mind control kind of way. Yeah. But it's very effective as like a horror scene. And I think for me, it was interesting because it colors the way you read their interactions going forward. Because like in the Zeb Wells, New Mutants, Mm -hmm. he's really keen to try and win her over. Yeah. And actually like be with her to the point where in one of, I mean, that's one of, 
It's not really a, a sunspot story, but like the Zebos New Mutants is one of my favorites just overall. I love Zeb. I haven't read those. So now oh, on, your, on your approval, I will go back to them. You must. It's very yeah. short. It's only like 20 issues. And I won't tell you exactly what happens because you should go read it. But there's a moment where Ilyana turns to him and tells him something he really doesn't want to hear in the most cold matter of fact way possible wow and he does the right thing anyway even though he's just heard the worst thing he could possibly hear about the situation that's unfolding so it's a good heroic moment for him and i think we see his character you know just getting to the root of him he really does make the right decisions he could have been selfish with juliana and kind of forced the issue in a way and really tried to make something happen he could have dragged that girl to xavier and been like fix this like yeah you know yeah. bring juliana's memories back or whatever and he doesn't do that he lets her be happy as this new self and lets her go and similarly he kind of lets amara go when yeah. it becomes clear that while Amara humors him and will like give him a kiss on occasion or whatever, mm. she's not really feeling it. You know? Yeah, it's not going to be more than that. I mean, she'd rather go on a date with Mephisto. So <laughs> we'll get pretty, to that in the magnet episode. Don't worry about it. No, I, I can't wait to hear it. But there's also um, there's that road trip, too, where he has mm-hmm. his, his moment with Tabitha. With Tabby. Yeah, and it becomes, I mean, in many ways, that could have been the breaking point for him and Sam. And instead, we see this very kind of gradual reconnection, and they retain their friendship, which I thought was, and it's not about the guys. It's also, obviously, it's about the, there's this, you know, it's it was a, a misstep for all of them, I guess. Well, it's a way to get Cannonball off the team, because they want to put him back on the X-Men again, right? Right. So the idea is sort of like, Tabby cheats on Sam with... Right. Bobby and it's like my girlfriend and my best friend like it's the cliche right Three friends yeah and they feel very guilty about it but they're also really into each other and Sam has been kind of off doing his own thing sometimes and it's just like yeah they got closer as Sam sort of got more distant from both of them individually it's not the kind of plot you typically get in superhero comics though that kind of infidelity plot Yeah. With your heroes, like having the heroes actually cheat on other heroes with other heroes. And not be heroic, you know. Yeah. But that one stood out for some reason. I mean, that was one I remember reading and just being surprised by. Well, it's good, I think. Yeah. It's crazy to think about it now. I mean, the fact that that was like the big love triangle is wild to think about. Because Tabby is so out of both of their lives now at this point. Yeah, she's not. you're just kind of like, huh, remember that? Yeah, yeah. You remember her being such an integral part of their their day-to-day. Whereas now it's this love triangle with this new character that Hickman invents, Smasher, the Mm -hmm. Imperial Guardsman. That's an interesting one because in the Avengers series, and this is stuff I've glanced over since... I referred to her as Cannonball's alien wife in an early episode, and people were like, she's not an alien. She's the first Earthling to become a member of the Imperial Guard. I'm like, okay, fine. I'll go read this shit, I guess. (laughs) The big thing that's interesting there is that, like, Beto is really into Smasher. Yeah. When they meet, and he's pursuing her, and then he comes upon Sam and Smasher making out. And it's the exact flip Mm -hmm. of the scene where Sam walks in on Tabby and Roberto. So that I like, and I like that he has a mature reaction to it, in part, I think, because of the fact that he and Sam have rebuilt their friendship after the initial thing with Tabby. I mean, the problem is, 
and this is a problem for Tabby, and I think it's also a problem for Izzy, is that the, which is Smasher's real name, yeah. is that the core relationship that the readers care about and that I think the writers care about is the relationship between Sam and Beto. Right. The women are sort of more, it's almost like an Eve Sedgwicky kind of thing where it's like they're working out the homoerotic elements of their relationship by both pursuing the same woman. It's like that sort of metaphorical mm-hmm. thing. It's very Scott and Logan. It's very like that. Yeah, and it's it's also, I mean, stories like this, the way it's just, it's something that can only really happen in comics. You can't have this kind of sequential momentum happen anywhere else. I think the closest thing we have is like soap operas, like these long running narratives that mm-hmm. keep built, building and building and building. And it's not, like you said, it's not just about the punching and the kicking. There's these like romantic subplots, these like, friendship dynamics that change these loyalties that change i guess maybe the only other thing that's close to it is professional wrestling with yeah which is very similar in that way except mm-hmm. that with professional wrestling you just lose people sometimes they just go away because they're like real people who get fired or who get injured or whatever is yeah as opposed to these characters you can just dredge up as many times as you want and they never age yeah yeah we need to talk about Deathbird though what are your thoughts on Deathbird? as an individual character i think she's fantastic as beto's paramour i mean i kind of love it i think it's fabulous yeah i will say hickman's roberto is obviously very different from the one that came before he is Mm -hmm. much more of a comedic character the angry young man characterization of the 80s and 90s is just gone which is good i'm cool with that i think it's a natural outgrowth of the character i also i mentioned this now that warren and monet and beto are sort of the rich mutants driving the X-Corp stuff, mm-hmm. even if Sunspot is right now doing it from space rather than yeah. like in the X-Corp book. I think that it distinguishes him more from Monet as a character who is similarly like someone whose big character flaw is that she's prone to kind of like outbursts of anger yeah, and being kind of prickly. And classic Sunspot is a prickly guy who's prone to these outbursts of anger. So I think making him a little bit more of a happy-go-lucky character, it makes him a third prong sort of in that triad that has a distinct different personality whereas i think they'd be a little similar if they it, both... it also helps him i mean we i i think beto when claremont was first created co-created him and wrote him was a very kind of primal ya character and i think mm-hmm. you know when you write ya and we can this is a i guess a publishing discussion but the idea is that the characters who are younger feel things more than they would as adults yes. because it's so primal and so emotional and so basic I think at a certain point, Beto had to grow out of that and just become something else like any, any other adult does. Yeah, and it feels natural to me as an outgrowth. Like it feels, if you go back to the moments in the classic stuff where he's having fun, where he's being flirtatious, like where he is not worrying about his father. Yeah. You know, the vibe that you really get is like he's processed all of his dad stuff at this point. Like He's gone he to, to therapy. therapy. Yes. Right, like, yeah. you know, and it makes sense to me as a thing. I love the idea of him and Deathbird I think it's enormously funny. I will say, I think Hickman laid on the homoeroticism pretty thick also in that first arc when Beto's like, oh, I've only ever been in love like however many times. And he's like Mm -hmm. looking at Sam. You're kind of like, huh. And I don't know that the book will ever actually go there, obviously. But I think much like with Logan and Scott and Jean, the text is playing with the ambiguity of that relationship that's always been there. It just makes me think back to what you said, I think, earlier in the show that, you know, Hickman's 
basically the synthesis of mm-hmm. Claremont and Morrison, whereas Morrison took the ideas and was much more about amping up the ideas and then having characters react to the ideas. Hickman is taking the character beats and the subtlety of Claremont with the big ideas and playing that out in its own really fun way. Yeah, for sure. I love the Deathbird plot twist. I mean, the relationship. I think it's really fun and it's rife for storytelling, which is, as a writer, I look at it and I'm like, this would be great to play with. I think the idea of Beto being stepfather to Vulcan's child is extremely funny. So that yeah. would be a... Because <laughs> like, that, what happened to Deathbird and Vulcan's child? It's got to be out there somewhere, right? It probably has a... It's... Don't worry about it. I'm just saying it's, it's still never been named on the page. We don't but know now I'm worried about there. it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As a father to young children, <laughs> I'm worried about it. Vulcan doesn't seem too worried about it. So. No, he seems good with it. Yeah, he's he's okay on the moon or wherever. I have to say, it's the first time I've ever liked that character. So I'm all about him just being drunk on the moon and trying so hard. But everybody's just like, this character sucks, which is like sort of the <laughs> vibe. You, it's fun, you know? Yeah. No, that one spotlight issue uh, Hickman did was fantastic. Yeah, you have to kind of make him a joke because that character takes it like the the story. Deadly Genesis takes him so seriously Mm -hmm. and he's a pretty ridiculous character. So I think it's a lot like Mr. Sinister. You kind of have to lean into it being funny. That's when Sinister works. Yeah, Gillen revolutionized that character by just making him funny because in the 90s, I think he was boring when it was like, we have to really take this guy super seriously in his pancake makeup with a red diamond on his forehead and his big foofy cape. It's like, and he's just going to say these ominous things that never really pan out. Right. Yeah. Now's a good time, I think, to get into the listener questions because we got like five billion of them. So if I oh, don't read your question today, thank you for writing it anyway. We got so <laughs> There's like 20 of them. We can't do them all. That's good. So... Julia Blunk writes, Hi, Connor and guest. Just writing because I really like Averto since we're both Brazilian and extremely annoying. I guess my question is to do with the <laughs> representation of Latin American characters in general as well. Often, Roberto gets written as a generic Latin American character, including sometimes speaking Spanish and such. And the nuances of his existence, e.g. being a mixed-race black Brazilian man from Rio de Janeiro, Brazil's incredibly big and regional identity matters. Mm-hmm. While I don't expect everyone to have a perfect grasp on how every single one of those things would manifest themselves, I'm wondering if you guys have any thoughts about how Roberto's individual trait should be written in a perfect world. I understand that race is a concept in flux and that all Latinos often get racialized as a homogenous group in the U.S. And as someone who also has Nicaraguan heritage and is proud of it, I of course think his status as a Latino character is very important. But I think there's space to tell stories, for instance, about Roberto's more complex thoughts about mutant identity in Krakoa having experienced the extremely intricate race systems of upper-class Brazilian society, where his blackness would get both erased and discriminated against. Equally, it could lend some nuance that at times gets forgotten when it comes to his relationship with his father. Please don't feel intimidated if this seems like a huge question, but it'd be good to hear people's thoughts, even if just as a general thing. Love the podcast always. Thank you very much. Also, here is a note. I don't know if the guest is Brazilian, but if they are, can you tell them how nuts it is to think about Roberto as a Lula baby, literally growing up in the best of the Brazilian boom, only to have it explode in his face later as he's learning about mutant identity. LMAO, talk about a backdrop. Wow. And that's just the Brazilian political... I mean, the sliding time scale moves yeah. the characters forward in time. It's sort of like remembering that like Kitty Pride is now a young millennial, maybe Gen Z, old, maybe old Gen Z. She's, what, yeah. like 25? So, 
you know these these characters do move forward and backward in time. Yeah, there's only very there's few characters that have defining you know like Magneto and Auschwitz like that. He is locked into that moment, so you have to kind of continue to explain. Yeah, you find ways to explain that he's been de-aged a couple times. It's fine. It doesn't work as much well for Charles, but it is what it well, is. Well, it's like, rough on Gabby Haller. I'll tell yeah, you that exactly. much because she's. <laughs> yeah. I was saying on Twitter that like there's no worse character in the sliding time scale to be than Gabrielle Haller, a normal non-powered human who survived the Holocaust and whose signature character trait visually is that she's constantly chain smoking because you can't smoke anymore in a Marvel comic and she should be like 100 years old. Right. So, <laughs> what helps there is that her son is a reality warper, so like we don't have to think too much about Yeah, maybe that, he's right? been working on that. I'm- well, she died and came back at one point. Like they've done Oh, right. They've yeah. done stuff. If you're listening, Marvel, let Gabby Holler smoke for God's sake. She's <laughs> been through hell. Let her have a cigarette. I think yeah, I think something the the question really points out that's smart is that you know a lot of people treat latin culture as a monolith and um the discussion always comes up it came up a lot during the election this idea that you know courting the latinx vote or courting the hispanic vote it's it's not one thing you know there's Mm -hmm. so many it's 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 just a term that covers a lot of ground it doesn't mean that we all act the same way i mean i'm cuban-american i was gonna say cuban-americans in terms of voting blocks in the election, it's often noted that Cuban Americans skew conservative as opposed right, to the right, rest right. of the Latina community. So yeah, which is so yeah, that's that's a great point. And and I think as creative people or as writers, whenever you write outside of your own identity, the onus is on the creator to do the research and do the work and make sure that the way you're choosing to represent this character is genuine and as close to accurate. I mean, as accurate as you can make it, because you know, to have Beto speaking Spanish, just that's like just an egregious kind of mistake. Yeah, that's just a mistake. Yeah, it's just a mistake. I'm willing to grant more leeway to mistakes made in the 80s than yeah. I am to like now when we have the internet. It's like, just, you know, Google it. Yeah, just do your At homework. This point. I mean, that's, like, that's, part, do, of, that's part of writing know? anything. I mean, but also, especially if you're writing outside of your own experience. I mean, for me as a writer, creating characters, I wanted to create characters that I didn't see like I, I wrote this pi series and and the protagonist is a cuban-american man around my age at the time mm-hmm. and that's because in that genre of crime there weren't a lot of latinx protagonists there was like the you know, there's usually the funny like you know hispanic friend but there was never like the star you know the, the right. latinx guy was never the star and never you know the protagonist in a meaningful way and never had the same cultural experiences that i had and so i think whenever you are writing I was writing in my experience, but whenever I think you're writing outside of your experience, it's it, the onus is on you to do the research. Mm-hmm. I would agree. And I think that he is, because of all his intersections, much like Monet, an interesting character to play with in the context of Krakoa. So yeah. I'm excited to see what's done with him in the future. It feels like Hickman has kind of a plan for him. So I'm hopeful we will see more of him soon. Agreed. Jesse Adkins writes, Hello, Connor, an esteemed guest. I'm so excited you're covering Sunspot this week. I'm sure you've already addressed this before even getting to listener questions, but what do you think the deal is with Beto and Sam? In the early New Mutants run, they seemed like great friends, probably more, that learned a lot from each other and grew in the process. Then in anything from the last five-ish years, they banter and joke like an old married couple. I've always gotten very gay vibes from them, but was there any era where you bought them as just friends? Thanks so much for such a wonderful podcast and such a wonderful community on the Discord server. I really loved having a group of people I can talk comics with. Love from the Zala gang, Jesse. Well, thank you. So I would say there is one period where they vibe very hetero and it's the Liefeld 
era into the Nisiesa era. Now, insofar as any character that Rob Liefeld is writing vibes heterosexually, because as we've talked about, his hyper-masculine style is often sort of unintentionally homoerotic, like a gladiator movie. Shatterstar being the key example of that. Once Nisiesa was writing, I think Nisiesa was invested in the Shatterstar and Richter plot that he was kind of hinting around the edges mm. of. And so I think that it gets de-emphasized with Sam and Beto. And then as the 90s go on, they kind of just diverge as characters. So I would say like in the 90s, it feels outside of like the symbolic, we're fighting over tabby stuff that you could mm. extrapolate if you want to. They feel pretty straight to me there. But yeah, in the 80s stuff, like most Claremont best friends, they feel like they should kiss. And in Hickman stuff, it's absolutely there. It's very clear to me, at least, that it would make sense to go there. I don't know that they will. Again, a lot of these questions, I get questions sort of every week, like, do you think this character should come out? I think right. every character should come out. Like, you know, like, it's the fucking X-Men. I think they're yeah. all pretty fluid, at least, let's say. But making comics isn't always about exactly what the writer wants to put on the page, let's say, especially when you're making comics for the big two. So I just don't know what the likelihood of that happening is, but I enjoy the way they're written right now. I think they do feel like it's very easy if you want to read the two of them as people who used to be intimate in that way and aren't anymore, you can absolutely read this story that way. And it makes just as much sense as reading it as though they're best friends and Beto feels abandoned because Sam got married and had a kid. Like those right. are equally valid readings of the story. And I think that Hickman intentionally allows for the ambiguity to be there much as Claremont often did for you to interpret that mm -hmm. however you want. Andre Hetu similarly wrote in and said, as a black bi guy from a mixed cultural background, I've always had vibes with Sunspot. I want to know what your opinion is on having Sunspot come out. Within the realm of the X-Men, there's a real lack of black queer men and it would mean a lot to me to have all those coded moments in the past feel like they paid off. I completely agree. You know, he says that when gayness is represented in media, it tends to be through the lens of white gay men. And that's absolutely true. Yeah. I think that Prodigy obviously has been a real godsend on that level. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think there is a dearth. I mean, the fact of the matter is if you look at queer black characters, there are not that many. You can count them on, I believe, one hand. It's like, and I'm going to forget somebody, I'm sure, but I'm thinking off the top of my head and it's like, Prodigy, Kyle, North Star's husband, who, like, mm -hmm. for certain values of character, is a character. And then you start to, like, have to think, right? Like, Tempo is, again, a character I keep pushing, but she's only a lesbian because Mike Carey says so. It hasn't been on the page. It's just implied heavily in Age of X. Right. But that's a character where they're bringing her back, and I really hope that they bring her back explicitly as a black lesbian character, because I think that would be cool. Then you've got Bling, who we covered last week. But, like, mm -hmm. it's a problem, I think. There is a lack. Doing it with a character like Sunspot is helpful because this is a character with a really long legacy. It's a character with a pedigree. Much like Iceman is a Lee Kirby character, so that made a big fucking splash. This is a Chris Claremont character. That would make a big splash, because this is a character from that golden age 
age of the X-Men. Those characters are just sort of automatically afforded more status than a character like Prodigy or Bling, who are from like a younger generation that came after that heyday of the X-Men. And so I think it would be a really cool thing to see. I think especially if he were a bi character, because those are shockingly rare given how bisexual any X-Men comic is. Um, particularly in the 80s. So, you know, I think that would be super cool. I would love for them to do that. I feel like Hickman has primed the pump to do that if they ever let him do it. I don't know if he wants to. I'm just saying, like, it definitely feels like something that could happen and would feel very natural in terms of how Hickman has written the character through Avengers and now into New Mutants and now into whatever's coming next. Yeah. So we'll see. I don't know. A lot of you wrote in asking if he and Sam and his wife should be a thruple. And um, yeah, but you know, like, again, will we ever see it? I don't know. Frankie Skeeler wrote in to say, hello, Connor and Alex. You turned the pod is one of many gays listing. I truly appreciate the vibes. Sunset's potential queerness is frequently brought up in regards to him and Sam as a thing, but I think there's a lot more going on than just that. I find his relationship with himself and the performative aspects of his character to be very queer. I read him as a sad, dramatic gay mess, and I'm just really here for that. Hmm. The stuff with Sam I personally see as a one-sided crush, which for me makes his story a lot more interesting. Any thoughts on his queerness beyond his relationship with Sam? To which I would say, I don't, but I think that's a story that I would love to read. Yeah. Because that also, that was Nicias's plan for Shatterstar, was going to be that Richter was straight, Shatterstar was in love with Richter, And Richter was going to have to explain to him, like, we're just friends, but I do love you. And this was going to be like Shatterstar learning about human Oh, right. Yeah. So I think actually doing it so that Sam is straight and Beto has been pining a little bit and like finally gets with a different guy because he realizes he's married. He has a kid. Like, this isn't going to happen. I got to get over it. That would kind of be an interesting story, too. And I think that that kind of later coming out, because he's probably in his late 20s now, for go- or mid-20s, I guess. He's, he's the same. X-Men ages, who cares? But yeah. he's, roughly, he's roughly the same age as Kate Pride. So probably like 25, 26-ish, let's say. You know, I just think that could be interesting. I, I, he's a character who hasn't had a ton of interiority time stories that focus just on him since sort of the stuff with his dad in the 90s with Rainfire. So I don't know. I think there's so many things that could be happening in his head that we've never quite seen. Definitely. Colin writes, what up, Connor and Alex? I've long been a podcast resistor, but after seeing so much positivity around your pod on Twitter, I finally broke down and gave it a listen. I was instantly and irrevocably hooked. It's so good. And you and your guests are so funny and informative. Well, thank you. That's incredibly (laughs) sweet. I hope I don't ruin it for you. You're not ruining it. You're great. You're doing a great job. Everybody's always so nervous. And I'm like, this podcast is about vibes. Like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just relax. Just feel it. Like, have a drink if you drink. Like, <laughs> you know, smoke a J. Whatever's going to calm people down. I had a seltzer. There you go. Have a seltzer. For some yeah. people, that is exactly right. On to Mr. DeCosta. This isn't a question per se, but I would appreciate your insight into the whitewashing of Roberto and other POC characters. I look at him in his first appearances, and he's undeniably drawn as an Afro-Latino. Later appearances have him looking more Italian swarthy. What's going on? Should Marvel create some sort of character color wheel? I think they have something similar to figure out heights. What about the actors who have been cast to play Roberto in the films? It seems like his Afro-Latino heritage is an intrinsic part of his character, and to see so many creators get it wrong across so many forms of media is fucked with a capital F. Thanks again for the hours of content. Colin, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I didn't, I haven't seen the New Mutants movie. Um, the actor's great. He's just unfortunately not black. And you're just right. kind of like, this is weird. I mean, it's just a weird, it's just a weird thing. And the director said 
I wanted someone who seemed wealthy when asked oh. about it, which you go to the comics and Haruto is wealthy and his father is wealthy and his father who's wealthy is black. He was like, I wanted someone who seemed like they had a really rich dad and this actor really sold that. And I'm like, there's just so much put into that statement that it's like, wow, unpack that. Like, think about what you're saying, you know? I think it goes back to what we were talking about as writers too, just being mindful of the experience, whether it's yours or or not, you know, to be accurate. And I think that also applies to the art, you know, just making sure that the way you're interpreting the visuals are as accurate as to the source material, you know, to what you're trying to represent or, you know, that's how I would see it. Mm -hmm. I think in terms of do they like a character database with all the skin colors, I think that would be a good idea. I know that some writers incorporate stuff like that into their notes. I don't know if it is a company-wide thing, but I think it should be. We've had so many incidents, even recently, where a character like Storm or Monet or Beto will be too light. And there's just really no excuse for it. Part of it is that I do think a lot of colorists, and of course, colorism is the question, right? So it's always like a double kind of mm -hmm. under here. But I do think that a lot of colorists have issues illuminating and lighting dark skin it'll be like, because this scene is really bright or there's like a light shining right on them, they look lighter than they're supposed to. And that's not actually how dark skin illuminates. Right. So I think that that's part of it. I think that it's a lot like how a lot of people just don't know how to draw natural black hair textures. And the answer to that is like, do your homework. Like, I don't know what to, you know, yeah. I, I don't really know what else to say there. I think that, it's an issue that everyone's aware of. It does need to come sort of top down at a certain point. So I agree that there should be a model sheet, if nothing else. Like give every, I mean, Steph Williams was saying last week that she like puts Fenty shades in her scripts. Oh, wow. Assign everybody a Fenty shade. <laughs> Have an Excel spreadsheet. I've got all kinds of obsessive compulsive Excel spreadsheets. If they would like me to make one, I'll do it. I'll send them a hex code. With Beto, it's really unfortunate because, I mean, it's unfortunate with any character, obviously, right? Right. But with Beto, it's really unfortunate because his story is about anti-Black racism. Like, that is his origin story. And that is so much of his complex about his father, about their place in Brazilian society, about all of that, is that, like, the white Brazilians and non-Black Brazilians, I'm not, again, enough versed in Brazilian racial dynamics to, like, specify all the different things. But basically, everybody who isn't Black or isn't perceived as black in Brazil, looks down on him and his family, even though they're wealthy. That is a dynamic that is sort of essential to the character because I think it's part of why he feels so betrayed to discover that his father is a bad guy because he wants his father to prove everyone wrong. All of these people who think racist things about their family. And when his father turns out to be a criminal, it's like... The subtext to me is that he's like, this is not only a betrayal, it's also, it's embarrassing. Right. In front of all of these people who have always said that we're trash, like you're behaving. It's in a, a dual betrayal. Trashy yeah. way. Yeah. I think that that's just super important to the character and it's a shame to lose it. And I'm glad that in more recent stuff, it does seem like they are portraying him more overtly as looking like someone who's half black as opposed right. there was a period for sure in the aughts in particular where he did look just Sicilian. Like it was not, you know, and yeah. that's a problem. 
I'm with you on this. I think the movie casting was disgraceful. And I think Henry Zaga is a great actor. And Aran Kantu, who played him in Days of Future Past, is also a great actor, but neither of them is black and it's not appropriate casting. And that's just the bottom line. The Josh Moon interview about it really did not help because he was so dismissive. He was like, I don't really care about racism in Brazil. That's not really what the movie's about. And it's like, well, okay, Han, like maybe you should care if you're writing a character who it's relevant to. Adam Levine asks, what is the deal with Rainfire? Hi, Connor, longtime listener, first time caller or emailer, I guess. Love the pod, yada, yada, yada. But just to jump to the main topic, what is the deal with Rainfire? Like, I guess he was supposed to be evil Sunspot, but he turned out to be a clone of Sunspot or something. Did the writer change the storyline mid-story? Is this like when Cannonball was supposed to be an external? But also, his name is cool and totally something I would see Bobby thinking up. No, you see, it's like a rain of fire, but also he reigns over fire. And nobody would care except for Cannonball. Sincerely, Adam Levine. So, we would explain this a little bit. I just just thought that letter was funny but like basically yeah what literally happened it wasn't that the writer changed the story it's that the story changed the writer yeah the writers changed Nicieza yeah. was kicked out and the writers afterward did something very very different and Fabian if you listen back to his interview is not happy about it to this day you can tell oh right yeah Jonathan Lee asks Dear Cerebro, what are your thoughts on Sunspot becoming an Avenger in the 2010s with Hickman and Al Ewing redefining the character and making him more prominent? Do you think it feels like a natural character progression? I love listening to your show. It is one of the creme de la creme of X-Men podcasts. And I oh, that's very sweet. I'm not going to read the rest of that. But I thought it was interesting. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I thought it was an interesting take for the character, especially because he'd been kind of off the grid for a while. So Yeah, I'm always a little like iffy when mutants join the avengers i just don't believe it's leveling up i I think it's more traditional superheroics which i think is fine i think that he perceived it as leveling up and that's what i think was important because it showed him and sam deciding you know what yeah we do deserve to be like hailed as superheroes yeah that's sort of the choice about it that i always find interesting is saying like yes i want that i want to be like a celebrity hero i want to be that person I think it's interesting because Beto has always had, he's always taken sort of side strategies, whether it's with the Hellfire Club or then with AIM in the Avengers story. So I think that it made a lot of sense as, again, like, because he never bought into Xavier's shit and never really bought into Magneto's shit. So it fits with his character that he'd be like, well, none of that's worked. Let's try something else. You know, like that sort of makes sense to me, especially after the decimation makes the mutant question a lot more... Uh? Yeah, what is mutant? <laughs> right, exactly. Augustine Suniga writes, Greetings and salutations with Connor and Alex. I remember reading Chris Claremont's original New Mutants graphic novel and absolutely loving it. For many reasons, one highlight for me was being utterly surprised and delighted when a South American character showed up in a Marvel comic book, and he was part of the main cast. Even though I'm not from Brazil myself, as a fellow South American, I feel there are many similarities in our lived experiences and histories. Even so, we have very distinct cultures. Chile and Brazil are not the same at all. And this leads me to my somewhat tangential question. Where are the other South American and Latinx characters? I can still appreciate and relate to characters like Bobby, who's Brazilian and Sofia Montego who's Venezuelan but part of me still wishes I could say that I share a nationality with an X-Man and beyond just seeing me I'd like to see characters from other nations in South America including the indigenous groups who are often not recognized as nations always grateful for the podcast and the variety of perspective showcased in it regards to you both cariños y muchos saludos desde Chile well thank you for writing it's very sweet. in yeah. that's very sweet I would say Frankly, and Luis Lopez and I got into this a little bit in the Richter episode, it is a big problem at Marvel generally, I think. There are very few Latin superheroes at Marvel, which is odd because especially if you're looking at this as like 
American superheroism, which it typically is, the Latino population in this country is only getting bigger, right? So it's just a gap that I think does need to be filled. In the X-Men, like, risque is Cuban. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, she's fun. Yeah. But she was dead for a long time. They right. finally just brought her back. You know, like, there are, just aren't that many characters. Richter's Mexican. Magma, let's not get into it. Magma's confusing, yeah. Well, back in the original story, they say that Magma and Selene are like partially Incan, but that's never been touched on again. I think because the Incas don't get that far to the east. Also, we now know Selene's from Europe, so that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it doesn't work. That's a don't worry about it. But uh, I mean, I hope you get a Chilean character. I think that'd be fucking cool. Yeah. My psychiatrist is Chilean and she's great. They should just make her an X-Man, frankly. I agree. Shout out to Dr. Cueva. She's great. Um <laughs> But like, you know, I mean, I I think that what you're getting at is really true, which is that white people, particularly white Americans, I think, tend to homogenize regions of the world as though they're all one thing. And, you know, you go to South America or to Asia or to Africa or to all of these places around the world that are gigantic continents and all of these cultures have such individual facets to them. It's not even it's not even country specific. I mean, there's every no exactly even within the countries and within the cities and within the smaller regions. There's so much diversity. Beto's from Rio. He's got a very different context from someone from a different part of Brazil. Brazil's freaking huge, right? So you know, I mean, it was pointed out to me recently how few Korean characters there are at Marvel Comics, and it's not something I had explicitly thought about because there are a lot of Chinese and Japanese characters at Marvel Comics, and so. I thought, well, they have a good amount of Asian superheroes. And they were like, name a Korean superhero. And it took me a second. There are like three. I think that this is something that's starting to change and that's exciting, but it's taking a while and I understand your impatience. And I'm glad that you've been able to see yourself in the characters that do exist. And I hope that you get something that makes you feel like your culture is represented. Yeah, I mean, that's what drew me to Beto. I mean, just seeing someone, another Latino character was such a huge awakening for me that it was it was so important so yeah i think it's a work in progress yeah finally krakoa welcomes asks who would sunspot worship as a modern version of thomas magnum of magnum pi because of course back in the day beto was obsessed yeah with magnum pi but in the sliding time scale i mean i watched magnum pi in reruns growing up but it wouldn't quite be like when he leaves the new mutants he even says to sam like they canceled Magnum P.I., Sam. Like, the right, big days right, right. are over. I think he'd be into the Fast and Furious movies. That is a great answer. I think he would love those movies. I think in terms of TV, he feels like the kind of person who would have been, like, very into Person of Interest and tried to convince me to watch Person of Interest, and I never watched Person of Interest, but, like, they were very insistent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear it's great. Don't write in. I believe you. I just never just not for watched you. it. It's just not something I ever watched. Yeah. In the same way, like, he would be into sort of procedural type stuff. CSI. He probably loves like Stabler and Benson on SVU. I feel like he just likes that kind of stuff. I could see that. Here's the thing about a procedural. It's comforting. If you look at the new mutants, like there's nothing procedural about their lives. They're just constantly getting thrown into new, insane, and even more twisted storylines. And so the idea of an episode of television where within an hour, the bad guy has been found, the problem is resolved, and Magnum gets to like have a cigar and walk off into the Hawaiian sunset. You can see why that would appeal to him because right. he's still sitting here like someone murdered my girlfriend and I'll never be able to make it better. <laughs> you know, like there's just no way to fix that. Yeah. 
And like then once his dad dies, like no way to fix this. Like I can kick the hell out of Gideon, but he's a fucking external. He'll come back. So it's just kind of like, you know, a bummer. Yeah, it is what it is at this point. Well, Alex, I would love to give you an opportunity to talk about your work a little bit before we start to wrap up. For sure. Well, my next book, Secret Identity, comes out in March from Flatiron Books, and it is a story set in 1975, New York, and it's about a Cuban-American woman, Carmen Valdez, who moves from Miami to New York to work in comics. It's her dream, uh, but she finds her dream kind of hard to achieve. I mean, she gets a job at this third-rate comic publisher called Triumph Comics as a secretary, and she works for the editor-in-chief, and she's been pitching stories, pitching stories, but not getting any traction until a colleague who works at the company approaches her and says, I've been given this assignment to launch this new female character, and I want you to ghostwrite it with me. He promises her credit. He says, you know, down the line, you know, we'll reveal that you're involved and it'll be great. And so she sees it as her only path to achieving that dream of writing comics. And so she ghostwrites the character. It becomes a huge hit, but then her colleague is murdered. And so she has to basically take on this amateur PI role to solve the murder of her friend, but also to reclaim this idea, this character that was very near and dear to her own experience. And the story is told in prose, but there's interstitial comic book sequences that are drawn by Sandy Gerald, who's a fantastic comic book artist. And um, yeah, it's called Secret Identity. It's a murder mystery, and it comes out in March. I'm excited about it. I will pre-order because awesome. I like you. Everyone who's listening should pre-order because pre-orders are how authors get more deals. That's how that it's works. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> so pre-order comics, pre-order books. Do you have any comics work coming up? Um, nothing that's been announced yet. Okay, well, yeah. keep us posted. I'm yeah, happy to I, always I am working promote some stuff. Yeah, on the Twitter, and thank you for thank being you. such a staunch supporter of the pod. Oh, it's a great pod. Thanks thank for having you. me. I mean, it's always nice when someone who's in the business. I mean, like I always, I love when anybody says something nice about the work I'm doing. Obviously, but when a pro is like, "This is the one to listen to," I'm always just like, "Well, thanks, God." Yeah, no, so, it's fun. Like, it's so it's such a deep dive, and it's such a such a rich world that, that as a fan, I'm listening to it and just enjoying it. Well, I'm so glad. Is there anything else you'd like to say about Huberto before we close up? He was, it was just such an important moment for me to discover him as a character and just kind of see this diverse, he was the first Latinx character I saw, you know, of, of the X-Men. And it was an important moment for me to see, you know, to see yourself out there in some way, even though obviously we're not culturally the same. It was just a, a really a kind of a lightning rod moment for me in terms of just my fandom and loving the X-Men and the new mutants. And so it's, it's great to just chat about him for a little bit. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Why don't you tell the listeners where they can follow you on social media and keep track of your work on the web? You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Segura, S-E-G-U-R-A. My website is alexsegura.com. Great. You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at CerebroCast. You can follow me on Twitter at DreamOfOrganon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find all of the episodes as well as a link to the Discord server and the merch store at CerebroCast.com, the official landing page for the podcast. Next week's episode will feature comics critic Zoe Tunnel. We will be talking about Beto's best friend, Sam Guthrie, a.k.a. Cannonball, who is nigh invulnerable when he's blasting. <laughs> Thank you so much for your support. As always, you can further support the podcast at Patreon.com slash CerebroCast. For $5 a month at the House of Zaladin tier, you can receive Secret Files, which are bonus episodes. There are four coming this month. The first is already out. Don't miss out. Instant access. It's pretty cheap, in my opinion. And it helps me do this show. So I appreciate all the patrons. And if you're not in a patronizing mood, 
I, <laughs> I appreciate all of your support. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, everybody, bye. Bye-bye. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, people mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. <laughs>